Greetings, everyone, and welcome to The Stacks. This is Jay. And I'm Shanna, and in a few years, we're just going to take this episode of The Stacks, call it something else, and put it out again and hope nobody notices. Well, we'll need to edit in a few little sequences. Like, oh, yeah. I, I don't know. We we might have access to other characters or, or other people by that point, and we'll just have Good to add point. them in. Maybe <laughs> we can make it about motorcycles. Uh, well, I mean, ideally, maybe that'll come back into vogue. Maybe it'll be oh, yeah. an Who actual post-apocalypse. Style. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, this week, we are initially talking about blood and flesh the real life and ghastly death of al adamson and 2019 picture directed by david gregory who is uh, the owner of severin films oh i didn't know that yeah so it's kind of cool uh it's a it's a very solid doc it's really well made uh, obviously he had access to all of the films because all of them are in this box that it was produced for mm-hmm. uh although i think this aired or not aired but played theatrically or at least at festivals and stuff well before the set came out oh okay okay something uh, like the documentary did yeah uh so th- this doc is like the first disc or the the first picture in the uh severin uh what's it called the al adamson masterpiece uh the masterpiece the al adamson master no al adamson the masterpiece collection and yeah so it's all of his films that currently exist uh some of them are missing uh I, like i think there are some films that are lost but i think only oh. a couple this is most of them. I, I think there's maybe like one European one that's absent or something. Okay. They they detail it in the book. Uh, um, but but this one is sort of a primer on the films, as well as a true crime story about the death of Al Adamson, which is a very strange uh, end to the story, uh, especially because he had already retired from filmmaking by that point. Yeah, yeah, it's it's really shocking just how his death had like nothing to do with anything involving his career or it was aliens or it was aliens uh there's there 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 is some discussion of that when we get there uh but i guess first we're introduced to the films of al adamson and so you've only seen cinderella 2000 and dracula versus frankenstein at this point right um i think so although there's now that I understand his um, filmmaking uh, techniques, I'm beginning to think that it's entirely possible I might have seen some of these films while they were called something else and just don't remember. Because I still have this weird memory of having seen Dracula versus Frankenstein before, despite not being able at all to put together when that would have been. I mean, I assume it must have been some sort of gathering. Like, I, I put that one on a lot. Uh, like, that must be it. Because I, I had it on DVD before this set, and it, it's just one that I've always put on a lot because it's just such a crazy mishmash of things. So w- with the opening of this documentary, we first get like a, an, an opening shot at the Indio California ranch, 
which is where the story concludes. They, they show that the ranch has been demolished and the space is still empty. It's sort of a teaser opening uh, for the true crime to come, but like doesn't show up until like the last half hour. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Like the last half hour is just leading up to his death, whereas everything else is uh, actually a really fascinating look at his career. Well, yeah, and just at how exploitation filmmaking in the 70s worked. Yeah. <laughs> Independence. Yeah like, yeah, like they even say um, for one of his first films, well, we can't sell that there's nothing to exploit in there. And then that's when the motorcycle thing started. Right. Uh, one thing I find really interesting as well, just sort of in light of that is the way this opens with a lot of different news reports from around his death where they're like a real life horror story and all all of these things which heavily promote uh him as a horror director but he really had very little horror in his output it's it's just kind of general exploitation it's just a lot of them have blood in the title yeah there a lot of them have blood in the title like uh Horror of the Blood Monsters, Blood of Dracula's Cursed, Blood of Ghastly Horror, uh, Brain of Blood. What else do we got? Hell's Bloody I, Devils. Yeah, Hell's Bloody Devils. Um, uh, that might be it, but that's a lot. That's a lot of blood. There's a whole bunch of them. There, there's a sequence where Russ Tamblin reads a list of all of the titles with blood in them uh, right after the opening credits that I think is really fun. <laughs> I kind of love Russ Tamblin in this. He's very, he, he's like, he's clearly been through, he he was there right from the beginning. He was there for all of these films because he's in so many of them. Uh, and, you know, he's he's been in Hollywood since he was a kid. He's really over all of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, everyone else is like talking like, oh, there was some magic to what Al did. And Russ was all like, nah. I mean, some of them, are, I, I feel like a lot of them are realists <laughs> Well, yeah. as independent filmmakers. as Like most of these people worked with Al and became independent filmmakers themselves. And like most of the, like his cinematographers all went on to be kind of big names. Oh, yeah, yeah. The opening credits montage is just a tremendous uh just a sequence of just great Al Adamson film moments, just all the crazy shit. I saw the Cinderella bunnies fucking. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, I, go ahead. I think, and I think the uh, weird, whatever those things were from the musical there. Yeah. Uh, and we get a list of just, you know, people he worked with Colonel Sanders. We've got Charles Manson. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, of course, Georgina Spelvin, because, you know, she was a former uh, uh, porn actress. And they, there's a shot of her topless punching a dude, which is awesome. <laughs> Worked with uh, Charles Manson is putting it a stretch. I think it's more like ask Charles Manson to leave his shoot. Yeah. Had Charles Manson ejected. But, like, he did work at Spawn Ranch. He did work when at Spawn they Ranch. Were, yeah, at the like, time they were occupying it and were in control of it. Yeah, like right they, up to the point of the murders. Right up, right up to it. Yeah, they were annoyed at the girls. I think they didn't like them. Well, they were trying to get them to go out to the desert with them. Right. Kind of, kind of sketchy. 
Oh yeah, I, probably for the dune buggies and all that shit, I guess. I guess so. Uh the the credits end with just a really great shot of Al as a vampire, which comes from one of the one of the weird inserts that he added for a Filipino movie that we'll talk about in a little bit. <laughs> So we were introduced pretty quick to Sam Sherman, who's sort of his partner in crime, sort of uh, kind of his best friend, basically. That's that's the impression I got in. Yeah, they were partners for pretty much the whole time. And he's got like a really elaborate Al Adamson archive. Like he pulls out the decayed head of Frankenstein from Dracula vs. <laughs> Frankenstein, just as marshmallowy as ever. Yeah. Decayed or maybe perfectly preserved. You can't really tell. Yeah, I mean, it looks a little worse for wear, but not a lot, because, I mean, it always looked about that bad. <laughs> it was so bad. I love it. Uh, and we have a bunch of clips from his last couple interviews where he was sort of doing retrospective interviews on his career. And they mentioned how, like, his 32 movies regularly play on TV. Yeah, um, and it's interesting. I think he, I, I don't know if it was this or the outtake that you showed me earlier, but he says something like, I don't think anyone could make a movie that that I've made with the as good as it was with the budget that I had, which at the time he said it, I think I probably true, but what well, Hollywood exists now. Right. I mean, as well, technology has become much cheaper. Like you can do a lot more with less technology. Like this was still shooting with film all the time. Yeah, that's true. Like you couldn't just get computer people to, I don't know, make an inside of a bar. You had to actually go to a bar. Yeah. Uh, and Al grew up in the film business, we learn. Uh, he was born in 1929 to Denver and D. Dixon, uh, a.k.a. Victor Adamson, uh, for, for Denver Dick or Denver Dixon, <laughs> the New Zealand cowboy. Yeah, there's this whole story um, in that you showed me in one of the deleted scenes about how he just, they, they wanted him to... Uh, come to Australia, but they had to give him an American name so they believed that he was an American cowboy, so they called him Denver Dick. Denver Dick. And he supposedly made the first Australian Western, and the dates they give on this are conflicting because they say 1910, but I think later on Al quotes 1907. But he's also says he like he also mentions that he'd never seen it <laughs> and like he'd never been able to see a copy of it. So like if anyone's uh, got a copy, I'd be interested. <laughs> uh, and then uh, Denver Dick came with the family to America to become an independent filmmaker. And he kind of introduced Al to the business over the course of being kind of an independent cowboy filmmaker for years. And uh, Al, I believe, uh, acted. Uh, in a few of his films, right? Uh, just in this, the, the just in Halfway to Hell. Uh, so I, I guess just briefly, I'd like to touch upon the deleted scene that's not included in the movie, but is included on the disc and is just uh, essential, like complete recommend to to watch because oh, definitely, you get a real interesting background on Victor Adamson and just sort of the way he did his business and everything. Um. 
uh, and and like the the buck mix westerns and like his his thing where like he he found i think a cement layer named arthur j mix yeah or a, a plumber it was a plumber yeah yeah cement uh, cement is something else <laughs> yeah that's right uh and he he got him to like create a production company with him like sign a contract so it was like he was mix productions and they they created a character called art mix (laughs) like they were the art mix westerns to uh capitalize on tom mix popular western star of the time well tom mix was supposed to work with him on a film but that deal fell through so he decided i'll get my own mixed films with blackjack and hookers (laughs) <laughs> exactly and it totally worked out and it worked out for everybody because like you know they went to court over it but you know he had a guy called art mix <laughs> he like, was... i'm allowed to name the company after myself yeah it's like well i i guess so and then uh the the guy who played art mix who but who i didn't actually like technically play a character called art mix took on the name art mix and then there was like several different people playing art mix or there being art mix westerns it was so complicated and it's it's a really great preface for the way al adamson handled his own movies yeah kind of like kind of uh i get kind of an ed woodish vibe from him not like the same but the same type of just kind of not really doing it by the book well the the wild independent filmmakers and like al's a few years later so he is more independent edward was kind of still working in the orbits of the studio system like he, he was kind of just working in the poverty rows whereas al adams was just like self-financing and making his own movies true true so Halfway to Hell is like Al ended up being in the film because there was an actor who got pissed off and left. So Al subs in for this guy in a bunch of scenes. And then when he's on set, his dad was directing and he got fed up and quit, too. So he had to finish directing the movie as well. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. He just directed. He's just like, well, fine, I'll direct the movie dad i guess and i guess this is how he met sam as well because sam went to interview his dad for some fan magazine and through doing so he managed to get an offer to distribute halfway to hell and met al and then you know they they were just lifelong friends and business partners Uh Uh, so at this point al is managing a singer called casey adams and he was he's made this movie called Echo of Terror and Echo of Terror is quite a long and storied production. I'm just looking at the back with uh, the list of all the things. I don't see it on there. Indeed, but <laughs> you actually see it on there three times because any <laughs> of the movies in the list are progeny of Echo of Terror. <laughs> yeah, so this one, uh, this one started. Uh, oh, what did it start as? I don't even. So recall. Echo of Terror is the original title, uh, yeah. and and that's what he was going to do. And this is the one that they're like, it, you know, it's a great movie, but there's nothing exploitable in it. 
and he has this singer so they're like okay we can add some go-go scenes to it and we named it psycho a go-go yeah so they just added they just filmed a bunch of go-go dancing and a couple of new scenes with a bit of new dialogue and singing yep and it's like okay well and sam's like we couldn't give it away they, they still didn't <laughs> yeah. want it. Nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted Psycho a go-go. And so they're like, okay, back to the drawing board. And they get a hold of John Carradine, and they shoot some scenes with him, and some surgery scenes, and they make it into a sci-fi movie about a guy who's had an electronic brain transplanted in him as an undead ghoul. Now, now that movie is also included in here. As that is Fiend with the Electronic Brain. <laughs> right next to Psycho and Go-Go. So you can watch both of these films. I, I have. Like <laughs> they're, these two are pretty close. They're, there's yeah. not a lot of difference between these two, but there's still one more iteration. <laughs> yeah, we're not done yet. So ultimately, they decided to also add a bunch of zombies. And they kept in all the John Carradine stuff, and they kept in all the surgery stuff, and they're losing more and more of the original one. Ultimately, when it comes out in its last version, there's only 10 minutes left of the original. Uh, And it's called Blood of Ghastly Horror, and uh, Sam's like, yeah, it also didn't sell. (laughs) (laughs) And, like... This is the one that he did a lot of extra work on. Uh, There's a lot of them that he just released under a lot of different titles. Yeah, (laughs) yes. Um, There there was, I can't remember what it was, but there was one later on where uh, where they just released the same movie again with a different title. And he's like, hey, I wonder who he got to shoot this. Oh, I shot this. Yeah, Gary Graver. Uh, one of his cinematographers, I, it's for the film, I think it was girls for sale is the original one. And he, and it's actually under the title that I originally saw it under back before I saw this set, uh, I spit on your corpse, which is (laughs) a really ridiculous title. And he's like, I spit on your corpse. He gads. And he's like, wait a minute. I shot this. <laughs> <laughs> but like they, they'd release them this way too. People would go to the movies and they just watch a film. They'd already seen once. Yeah. Cause it's just under a different title. They, they give it a new advertising campaign. <laughs> yeah. And the theater owners, they didn't watch all the movies. No, who they just could? looked at the posters. Yeah, who could exactly? Well, and and you know th- that was exactly the thing. The movies were sold on the posters, and th- they get into that that they're like, I mean, these films were financed based on their title and poster, and then they got the money, and then they made the movie. Yeah, yeah, they made the, t- uh, which is sort of kind of what Ed Wood did too, if mm-hmm. I recall. Yeah, um, totally. He's they he made a poster. He'd sell the idea to the producer and it's like okay it's going to be in theaters on this day and it's like okay well i have until this day to finish filming it then yeah and and that's kind of how the how these worked as well yeah which is i didn't know you could make movies that way i mean i, mean, I guess, I guess you you're can't not supposed anymore. to you, you well, kind of can't now it, it it's sort of yeah. 
it, it's because of the way films used to be distributed. Uh, and they, they talk about how that sort of fell apart, although they don't get too deep into that. Uh, what is it? Uh, uh, the, the book Nightmare Cinema by Stephen Thrower has a really good rundown of how that all sort of fell apart. Uh, I blame, uh, let's go with Weinstein. <laughs> he didn't really come into his power until like a decade or so later. Like that that's uh, that's like early 90s, I would say. Oh, okay. Uh th- this happened like post jaws. Oh. The end of the drive-in era. Oh, they do t- yeah, and they do talk about that a little bit too where cuz his movies don't really work anywhere else it's or he was having trouble making movies that would outside of the drive-in kind of thing yeah i mean they're exploitation pictures they're genre pictures they're not really you you go and see them as part of a bill and that that was kind of the whole idea for most of them you you just kind of want to get you're you're kind of advertising to a teen audience you you want to have uh, just specific exploitable material that's just going to attract a, a specific type of audience. Well, that's what Dracula versus Frankenstein was, and I'm I'm jumping around because I completely forget the order of all these films that he made. Yeah, I've but, I've got it all. I've got notes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, okay. like that's they were that's what they were even saying. The title is the advertisement for Dracula versus Frankenstein. Uh, I think that was a different one. Oh, is it? Uh, oh, it yes. could be. That, yes, that, that's the Filipino one. We'll, we'll get there in a bit. Oh, okay, okay. So uh, for Carradine, Carradine is introduced when, when with uh, them getting him for Fiend with the Electronic Brain reshoots. Uh, and Carradine is sort of one of these late Hollywood actors. Like, he was really major star in the early days of Hollywood and had sort of fallen on hard times and nobody would hire him. By the point Al Adamson got a hold of him. Okay, that another parallel. That kind of sounds like where Bella Lugosi was at. Uh, Very similar. Similar. Yeah, and well, like Lugosi had a heroin problem, I believe, whereas Carradine yeah, has an alcohol yeah. problem. Uh, but yeah, Carradine, he he was a very severe alcoholic, and they talk about having. Uh, on set, he he would just need to drink a lot, but he was always a complete pro with all of his lines. He would just always have them down immediately. Like he he just never needed uh, to do a bunch of practice or anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They, so they mentioned they handed him like it's like okay, we just changed a few of the lines. Here's the new or no, a few pages of the script, which is not a few lines he just glasses at it and he says oh and then gets up to the filming and just nails the new material yeah like just a total pro and he'd been doing it his whole life yeah so like the the alcoholism wouldn't really fly on a studio set but with an independent it's like you know what it's, it's, we, we got this you know if, if you can <laughs> deliver the lines and we don't need to reshoot that's we're fine oh yeah don't reshoot no, Not no second Nope. That's a waste of film. And so, like, the early stuff, they talk about the coverage being really poor and the action sequences looking pretty stiff and his cameraman kind of having to teach him how to direct. Yeah, yeah, which, well, the jargon of all that kind of went completely over my head. 
Mm-hmm. But that that is interesting. Yeah, like you see some uh, – this movie's or the, this documentary is really good at providing examples of Adamson's work to kind of complement what they're talking about to show, like, lack of coverage making the action sequence look weird with, with like, a punch landing and just a, a really strange reaction shot to it. Yeah, yeah they, they showed, uh, I think, a really weird kick. Mm-hmm. Uh, here we also have John – uh, John Bud Cardos, who's a pretty major guy. He, he starts working with Adamson pretty early on. Uh, he's playing three different roles in <laughs> the 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 Western movie that they were uh, they, that they had him for. Oh, yeah. He, he was the um, I guess the, the native guy, was he or was that? Yeah, else? I, I think he's Mexican. John Bud Cardos. OK, OK. But yeah, like he was playing three different roles and I think he also was part of the crew because like he's a director as well. Like I've seen John Bud Cardo's films. Oh, cool, (laughs) cool. Uh, He had the airplane too, didn't he? Yes, he was the guy who had an airplane and they would just like go out flying. He's also the one who says, I loved getting someone to work for free. (laughs) Well, Everyone kind of says that. Like, That's true. Towards the end, we even see the the cops who investigated the murder. It's like, well, it sounds like Mr. Adamson was um, a fairly thrifty person. Yeah, that that does definitely characterize him. He, he was he was a thrifty guy. Uh, and his his original cameraman, I can't remember who it is, but he's the one who like has the least illusions. And I was like. You know, Al Adamson, you know, I had to teach him everything. He wasn't good at any of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we get uh, Cardo's. Yeah, I mean, everybody had a lot of fun. Uh, we, we get uh, shots of John Bud Cardo's doubling for John Carradine in Blood of Dracula's Castle. Just like very obviously not John Carradine. <laughs> oh, God. And also... Blood of Dracula's castle. Now we had to find a castle. And they rented an actual castle. Um, yeah. In yeah. California. Yep. Not a not a very Dracula castle, but you know what? You, you get it's production you take, value. You get what you get. You yeah. make you make I mean, it work. It, it is production value, no matter how you slice it. Uh, and oh, yeah. I think this is the one where they had they had like a lucrative TV deal. But their producer had a gambling problem and lost the movie to Lone oh, Sharks. And then yeah, right. Maybe killed himself. Maybe was killed by the mafia or something. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, then something happened with him. And it sounded like he owed the wrong money to the wrong people. Yeah. <laughs> And they mentioned, yes. like, first that he had lost the movie to the Lone Sharks. Like, he just lost yeah. it. <laughs> the, the Lone Sharks own the movie now. Yeah. So their their whole lucrative TV deal just ended up falling through. Yeah. This is just an interesting misadventure in independent filmmaking, the, the way that those sort of things go. So that doesn't happen with a studio picture. No, but it seems to happen uh, here um, a fair bit. It's It's been known to happen. It's uh, it's not unheard of. Yeah. Uh, so we get the the the, uh, the the cinematographers who worked with him. There's Laszlo Kovacs, Vilmos Zygmunt, and Gary Graver. 
uh, Zygmunt is a really important guy. Like he's got Oscars and stuff. He's a really major filmmaker. Like he he's worked with. Uh, I, I think he's like Spielberg's guy now. Oh oh wow. Something I believe. Like he's Holy he's a really shit. major guy. Uh, maybe the Coens work with him. I should know who Zygmunt works with. And Alan says like, oh Willie. <laughs> and like he would hire him like just for a hundred dollars a day just a day at a time yeah and then would pay him with like change it's like here just handed them a bunch of dollar bills and quarters well so i he, guess he would go delivering newspapers and then collect money and just like to pay for some extra shots he'd come back with spare change yep yeah, and then the the guy was talking about like how after a while like he's like yeah he never paid me never paid me yeah he would just rip him off all the time <laughs> but he's but like they all say it with such fondness like yeah, yeah this they, guy never paid me they they respected the hustle because like if he needed to to pay you he would but like if he could get away with not paying you ooh mm-hmm. ooh. <laughs> all, all you have to do is get drunk and threaten to beat him up if uh, you don't get your money and then they'll get your money i guess uh, so the the next like the, the major cinematographer who worked with a worked with him for like most of his 70s movies i think is gary graver who is also orson welles cinematographer during the same period yeah, that's interesting. It's like, oh, I work for, I work with Orson Welles and Al Adamson. I know one of those names. He's an interesting dude, Gary Graver. And like, I have movies he's directed as well, and not necessarily very good, uh, but like, he's a he's a really excellent cinematographer. And he started with Al Adamson for Fakers, uh, which is this weird spy movie where they managed to get Nelson Riddle's orchestra to do the title song. I don't know who that is, but I, I assume it's that's... important big studio orchestra of the period. Okay. Uh, and they got Broderick Crawford to star in the picture, even though he had only one day of shooting. They just kind of spread out his shots in a room throughout the whole movie. <laughs> that's another there's a lot of stuff like that it sounds like yeah and Uh, this is sort of where they talk about al adamson kind of getting a hold of actors on their way down it's like "Ah, i can get a lot of name stars who aren't big anymore that's sort of where he gets them well that's kind of how we ended up with uh, russ tamplett who was um basically retired yeah, he yeah. was pretty much retired at the time. He kind of quit, time. but he was broke. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, Fakers is about some neo-Nazis trying to finance a Fourth Reich with counterfeit money. There's this whole crazy spy thing. Uh, and that's the one where they got free Kentucky Fried Chicken for putting Colonel Sanders in the movie. <laughs> Oh yeah, but he, he he wouldn't say he wouldn't say the line, so they just so Adamson just cut the whole deal and got like a different chicken. He yeah he featured a different chicken in there, but like Sanders is still in the movie. He just wouldn't oh, he still say. Shows up? Yeah, he's still in the movie. They still. Oh, have I was scene. under the impression they cut him. 
No, he's in there. Uh, he oh, just, so they just say the finger licking line because he had gotten all of these complaints when the, the, the TV ads had initially run. That dirty old man on my TV talking about licking his fingers. <laughs> well, we we do say it also now as a joke, too. So, well, yeah, fair enough, I guess. But yeah, he, he would not say the line anymore, so. Al Adamson got really sick of him and just like dumped <laughs> like got a different chicken company to uh, cater the rest of the movie, I guess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure Colonel Sanders was only there so that he could get the free KFC. Well, yeah, no, that's certainly the only reason he wanted Sanders to appear. He's like, oh, we'll, we'll get some. Like it, it was an obvious, just straight up deal. I feature oh, yeah. you and your product, and uh, we get free food for the cast. Then he, I guess he wouldn't shoot, say the line. So it's like, well, too bad the chicken's already eaten it. We've already shot it. And it's like, screw you. Uh, Graver mentions that there's a point where the police showed up, and that footage is in the movie because <laughs> it's just <laughs> free production value. The police showed up. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then Fakers, ultimately, it still didn't sell, so they retrofitted it with a bunch of biker footage, and that's the one that became Hell's Bloody Devils. Right, and then they 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 do a few biker movies, or maybe it's the same biker movie again. I can't actually tell. Well, they, they that's not quite yet, because it's oh, Sat- okay. Sadists is the, the big biker one that finally hits. I think Hell's Bloody Devils kind of doesn't go anywhere. Uh, right, because they didn't have Russ Tamblin yet. Right, exactly. And this is where they're talking about something's not right about this movie. It doesn't fit together right. And they're talking about how all of these movies are sort of constructed piecemeal, and they add new scenes later on. <laughs> they're, some of them are just completely constructed out of disparate parts. And this is where they get into the Filipino movie. Oh, Yeah. Originally, Creatures of the Red Planet, a black and white Filipino movie about a prehistoric planet of cavemen. Now, <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is, is this the one where they do the different uh, different colors? The tinting. Uh, call, yeah. They, they promoted it as Spectrum X. Uh, and then, amazingly... They shot additional footage to explain in story why it's tinted. <laughs> Which you absolutely didn't need on this kind of film, but it's there and I love it. <laughs> Just the extra effort. And they have that scene of the guy like explaining like, oh, this this color and means this and this. And then they're like, uh, let's also add some vampires. <laughs> This is where the the shot of Al as a vampire from the opening credits comes. (laughs) Yeah, which uh, he makes a a great vampire. He does. It's a really good shot. Like, it's Mm -hmm. it's excellent as, like, the the end shot for the title card in the credits. And then, of course, when the movie finally comes out, it's called Horror of the Blood Monsters. And they heavily promoted it as in color. This is the one that they're like, it didn't need an ad. Yeah, it didn't need an ad. The title was the ad. Horror Uh, of the Blood Monsters. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, what does it have to do with the movie? Not a damn thing. Who Who cares? cares? (laughs) They already bought the ticket. They can't can't go back. 
so this is where uh, Al Adamson has a deal for an Italian Western to shoot in Spain with Robert Taylor. And he goes to Spain to do it. And then it all falls through and he loses like a $50,000 investment. Yeah. And he has to like fly back and forth trying to save this deal. It sounds like. Yeah, and it kind of just ultimately totally falls apart. And it's when he comes back from that that he hooks up with Russ Tamblin. Uh, and this was just sort of like a perfect match, I feel. Because they're like, they, they mentioned Al, Al's favorite movies were musicals, which is what led him to Russ Tamblin. Because he starred in like Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, West Side Story. He's like a major uh, musical guy. As Interesting. A kid. I I only know him as Doctor Jacoby. Right. Which kind of sounds like that's sort of who he's a little bit turned into in real life with his uh, weird art. Yeah, but he's, not really. He's he's sort of become himself in cinema over the years. He, he's he's become very eccentric. Uh, and he at that time had just quit acting to become an artist, but he was totally broke. <laughs> so as he was like artists are sad as our, yeah, artists are frequently broke and he was willing to work with al because al was willing to just let him do completely do his own thing oh yeah and he ended up improving basically his entire involvement in the movie it sounds like yes he, he was a really big fan of brando in the wild one so like yeah it's a biker picture i can do a biker picture because of that He's like, the script was really bad. So I decided to just say whatever I wanted. <laughs> and so this became Satan's sadists. Uh, and he talks about meeting Quentin Tarantino and Tarantino quoting the entirety of the speech that he does in Satan's sadist to him when they met. <laughs> yeah, it's like, at first I thought he was joking, but then he started quoting it. I'm like, oh my God. Yeah. Uh, and th th this is sort of where the whole gang gets together because we have the screenwriter who's talking about a bunch of them and he wrote himself into the movie as the pothead character <laughs> uh and this is where regina carroll shows up as well now she her her thing is interesting because the only reason that she ended up in this thing is because she, they went to a diner and she spilled coffee on him yeah it was a meat cute yep that's exactly what it was just a, a proper meet cute and it was just love at first sight and i'm a really big regina carroll fan she is totally awesome in these movies she's such an eccentric presence in all of them was she in any of the ones i'd seen i believe she's in cinderella tooth well she's definitely in dracula versus frankenstein oh yeah right right she was yeah that's right but yeah i i can't remember who i'm I, like i'm sure she's in cinderella 2000 because i think she's in every adamson movie from this point forward okay well until well yeah, yeah. no he, he was not making movies by when when she died in, in oh i didn't oh, okay okay but yeah uh so they they get married very shortly after meeting uh she's in all of his movies uh and yeah like they, they don't get back get to her death until much later because she she does sort of after quasi-retirement yeah it was um well it was cancer is what it was yeah so like i don't so, know if okay. it was a really 
Yeah, like I, I, I don't know if it was like a long, prolonged thing. It's hard to say because yeah, they don't talk yeah. about much. Yeah, no, they don't really. They just they they talk about how well they talk about how much they loved each other. Yeah, like it, it was clearly a real romance. They they were like together through all of these movies and all of this stuff. And that's just not all that common in the film business. <laughs> nope. Uh, another thing with Bud Cardos for Satan Sadus, he's like, so in the script, it just says they have a fight. <laughs> <laughs> and we they had to make it all up. It's like, you just got to choreograph it on the spot. Uh, and <laughs> Satan Sadus is the first one that was like a big success. And I love this part because everybody has a completely different number for how much money it made. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's like, oh, it made... It made thirty million local and ten million abroad. Uh, it made seven million. That must have made at least five hundred thousand. This movie didn't make yeah. any money. And then Sam, Sam is like, I figure with inflation it'd equal about a hundred million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely killed me watching it this last time. Like. A hundred million dollars with inflation. Like, no, 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 I don't think so. But it was very profitable. Like it, it oh, was sure. it made enough money that they were able to start their own production company, uh, independent international. And then they're like, hey, let's put out all these other movies that we couldn't sell now that we have our own distribution company. <laughs> <laughs> the way they describe it is like, and we were releasing them as though they were new movies and not just ones that have been rotting in our shed for five years. Yeah. And that's why, like, all of these movies come out in, like, 1970 to 1972. There's so many. <laughs> and uh, I just remember earlier conversations uh, – in previous episodes that we've had where you were talking about him, you're like, well, you would say a movie is called this thing and I'll look at the thing and I don't see it anywhere, but I see this other movie that you don't talk about. And yeah, now I get it. Yeah. Cause sometimes they just had different titles. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And the same movie has like three different titles or three different versions that are kind of the same, but kind of different released different. Just, you he know, just, he just targeted a different audience in a different area, whatever <laughs> might sell. <laughs> he just did whatever. So next one they made after Satan's Sadist is The Female Bunch. Uh, and they, they have the lead actress from then. It's like, they asked if I knew how to ride a horse. And I said, yes, and that was my mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it turns out. You can't actually fake riding a horse. It's not as easy as it looks. It's tricky. I don't know how to do it, but I thought you just <laughs> sit on the thing, right? I guess. No. Uh, no. no. <laughs> I, I've been around horses, and I would not want to ride one <laughs> without extensive, careful training. Uh -huh. This is also the movie where they did some nude pickup shots at Spawn Ranch. Right. Yeah, this is where... Uh, they had to ask Charles Manson to leave because he was staring at the girls. <laughs> they uh, Al specifically had Bud Cardos eject him from the set. <laughs> it's like, Bud, go go get that guy off my set. And this was a week before the Tate LaBianca murders. Uh -huh. uh -huh. It's pretty crazy. 
Yeah. But it's it's also interesting that it's just the nude pickup shots that were all shot there, like after the the filming. Like the, it was sort of the last stuff in the female bunch. What's weird is Russ Tamblin kind of plays a Manson esque figure in that movie. Oh really? I think that's the one where he's like even got a cross on his forehead and stuff. Oh. And so he was doing that first. I wonder if it inspired Manson's look later. Because he did the cross on the forehead. Wouldn't that be something? It's interesting, right? (laughs) They they never mention it in the movie, but or in the doc here, but yeah. Yeah. Um he is the type of person who would see something like that and be like, hey, yeah, I gotta do that. That's cool. (laughs) Cool, yeah. Charles Manson is not a smart man. He's a fascinating little goblin of a man. <laughs> so then next, there comes the script for Blood Freaks, about a mad scientist doing blood experiments in a lab in an amusement park. Okay, um, and, <laughs> and I saw this one as a different thing, but also yes. a different movie. I didn't this eventually became Dracula versus Frankenstein and I didn't realize that both Dracula and Frankenstein were added in after the fact and it really was all uh, the doctor and, and uh, Lon Chaney Jr. who both um, <laughs> yeah well that, that's a whole story well yeah so th- this is such an interesting production and, and this is a real weird patchwork of a movie because it starts yeah as this mad science movie in an amusement park. And they're yeah. like, let's, let's bring in some name actors. And Sam's like, you know, we, we can get Angelo Rosito. <laughs> he's the dwarf who was in freaks and you yeah, know, he's man. been around forever. And he, he like tracks him down to a newsstand that he works at to get him to come appear in his movie. <laughs> and then Al also gets J. Carol Nash and Lon Chaney Jr who were both like very like I think this is the last movie for both of them. I think it's maybe their final film. I both wouldn't guys. be surprised. Right. So cuz Cheney has advanced larynx ca- larynx cancer at the time of the movie. Uh is incapable of speaking lines. Yeah, they gave him a but they gave him lines but he couldn't say them. Um nobody could understand them. Well, he so, couldn't even really stand. Uh, he yeah. and he was very heavily drinking. He kind of couldn't stand up. And they're like, well, we'll, we'll work around it. <laughs> we'll figure something out. That explains kind of why he uh, has such a good performance as the weird kind of gross Igor type. Yeah, he's just sort of this. He's not really acting. Yeah, he's strange and incoherent and troubled and emotional it's it's just a a really weird unique thing just a strange performance and of course j carol nash shows up in a wheelchair and they did not know he was in a wheelchair when they hired him either and he also couldn't remember any of his lines yeah they had to have cue cards uh which you could now that they pointed out you could see he is clearly reading the cards like you can watch his eyes just move across Uh, you you can watch his eye move across his one eye because one is a glass eye his dentures clacking shows up on the audio and they can't because they were too loose 
because they're too loose. Yeah. And yeah. And that's like the first version of it. And then they reshoot with him as Frankenstein. And they're like, nobody will buy it yet. So then it's like, okay, we'll also add Count Dracula. Now it's Frank Dracula versus Frankenstein. And like they cut to the screenwriter in the talk. And he's like, I had nothing to do with it. I don't know where any of that stuff came from. <laughs> yeah. And the guy who plays Dracula was their, um, oh, what was it, their accountant? He's a stockbroker friend of theirs. Yeah. Who, uh, they gave him a really badass name, and I can't remember what it was. Cause... Sandor Vorkov uh, was the fake name they used. His real name's Roger Engel. <laughs> yeah, and uh, it's an iconic look. Um, it's great. But... It's such a strange performance. <laughs> but the, the, as the documentary mentions, it's widely considered to be the worst Dracula performance ever. It's so fascinating, though, and, like, I, I feel for the guy because he is not an actor, and he's also, like, probably Al wrote it, <laughs> just yeah. wrote a bunch, of, like, he says, I don't know who wrote it, but the lines all ran together, there was no punctuation, I just had to keep droning on and kind of just fight it into a sentence. <laughs> well, the whole exposition line that he delivers about the scientists, like, uh, colleagues disgracing him or something. That's all one sentence. It's gibberish. It's so hard to understand. Like, I really feel for the guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then, like, things kind of just took off. Uh, Dracula versus Frankenstein was pretty successful and inter uh, Independent International kind of just... You know, they, they, they made modest bank off of all of their silly exploitation stuff. They They became good at the business. And this is where he's saying, like, yeah, all our pictures were made with the title and the campaign in front to finance the making of the picture. Yep. And there, there's a really great montage here where he's talking about certain failings with his movies. And, and they provide examples of them as he's talking. He's like, eh, sometimes we didn't have a good script or we didn't have good actors. <laughs> and they just, like, <laughs> cut to just really awkward dialogue or just some terrible acting. <laughs> uh, and then after this, they start into black exploitation because it's the early seventies. Oh, and Sam's yes. like, I said, how can we just make white movies? So they get Jim <laughs> Kelly and they make black samurai. Wow. Oh, what a yeah. crazy movie. <laughs> yeah. Which now, um, cause that was one that you had mentioned way, way back in the day way watching it. Now I kind of want to see it. Now that I now that I've got an idea of what Adamson's about. Yeah, so we've got like Biff Yeager fighting the pyramid of dwarfs, the human pyramid, uh, and a vulture as well. <laughs> oh man, I, all the one guy said was that fucking vulture or something <laughs> like that. And, yeah. And, and not really any context. Was it a real vulture? Or was it a... I believe it is, yeah. That's they, hilarious. They got some dangerous animals for their sets a couple times. They also mentioned how they would just get rental cars for their chase scenes at this point. And then they, yeah, rent cars for the chase scenes and bring them back and just like, uh, I don't know, it was always This is like running this. funny. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> 
th- this is where they also mentioned that Al started always having his tiny dogs on set. He'd always have like a tiny dog because oh, uh, yeah. he, uh, he and Regina Carroll could not have children. So they just had adorable tiny dogs on all the movies. Yeah. Uh, here they do the stewardess movies where Sam created a fake controversy by hiring a bunch of protesters <laughs> against the movie. That's <laughs> <laughs> so funny. And it worked. It was their biggest success ever. <laughs> <laughs> they were paid off by George Soros. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were paid off by Sam Sherman. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I get paid off by George Soros. Yeah, it'd be amazing. Uh, so the the first stewardess movie is such a big success that they're like, oh, let's get the Ritz brothers for the sequel. <laughs> the Ritz brothers. Well, first they were going to get the Three Stooges, but then one of them died. I think. I think so. Yeah. Uh, and this is where we have the big montage of all the many titles of the Adamson movies. Engraver finding the "I Spit on Your Corpse" VHS. <laughs> <laughs> well, this one was called Blazing Stewardesses, and it was a western. Yep, the sequel is on, uh, Blading, Blazing Saddles. Yeah, that one is completely nuts. It's got a couple big musical sequences. It, it's it's baffling. And then that's kind of where things start to dry up because Jaws comes out, and the major studios kind of just start crowding the independents all out of the business. And sort of put the drive-ins out of business, too. Like, they, they start just getting demolished. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and Which then... kind of what's happening with the... Well... Just actual theaters overall instead of, yeah. like, streaming. Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of all going to streaming right now. The, the yeah. movie business is in a similar point right now to where it was at this point in time. Although there's a different independent movement now. Like yeah, the kind independent of a, movement now is really neat. Yeah, like it, it can do so much more because there's so much more that technology can do. Uh, so it's there, there's more that you can do with it, but you can't really do the things you could then either. No, no. Like they were talking, one of the camera guys is like, yeah, his thing was he could just get in to some place he's not supposed to be, shoot a scene and get out. Yep. Uh, they they mentioned the the latter days of shooting Carnival Magic, his his attempt at a children's movie where they got an old chimp, too old, yeah, very dangerous old on set. <laughs> yep, and then that and then movie the is people, nuts. That one when is. When people cool. saw this movie, they're like, "Wait, the chimp was supposed to talk? We didn't shoot it that way at all." Yeah, they just dubbed in a voice over the chimp all the time, and it also looks like. The, the girl is jerking off the chimp. <laughs> it's so it really does. Like it absolutely looks like that. Uh, that movie is real crazy. Like maybe the craziest one in the whole set. <laughs> uh, and that's sort of like I, that's I, I think his second to last film, because then he does Lost, his other children's movie. And that's kind of it. Uh, and then Regina Carroll died of cancer in November of 1992. And I'll retired. And this is where a couple things, they, this is where it sort of takes that swerve into being a true crime dog, where they start talking to the housekeeper. 
she's like oh yeah my husband and i cleaned up the indio place and yard before we moved in and then they sort of get away from that again and go to the ufo dock he started working so yeah he was working on a ufo dock mysterious reality and apparently he saw an alien so stevie blaylock says that al met an actual human alien hybrid being sam will not talk about this incident he thinks al getting into ufos and becoming a deep believer in it was really dangerous and he feels like that project was shut down by shadowy forces yeah interesting he, he goes into like no details he's like i'm not at liberty to say it's so strange because right now we're we're in this sort of period of disclosure where uh, all of the ufo secrets are kind of coming out and they're not that scorching so i don't know yeah, it's it's interesting it's yeah it, uh, <laughs> just because this is so recent but we're like two years down the line and the the scene for that has changed, changed a lot yeah. things have changed a heck of a lot uh after not changing for a really long time mm-hmm. Uh, but then, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, but that, that's that's the thing. I, you know, maybe I won't get into my own thoughts on UFOs. <laughs> maybe <laughs> not right. Yeah, we we still have a another very long movie to cover too. Yeah, and an, an amazing movie. <laughs> yeah. So this is also the point where it basically starts heading into being fully true crime because they say okay this creepy guy shows up at al's house looking for handyman work named fred and he pretty soon starts mimicking al's hairstyle and clothing and he also takes out credit cards in al's name like he's looking to become al it's like come on guys did you not hear the creepy music when they were talking about like when he was showing up at the doorway i guess not and like well, well, they, they uh, very quickly his, find out that like he got the credit card in Al's name and Al finds out about it. And it just yeah. instead of firing him, he's like, oh, I'll just make him work it off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, wow, this is bad. It's dangerous. It, it just yeah. sounds like he's just making all the wrong decisions here. Yeah, like, and, and he, he fights with Stevie Blaylock over it. Like, I think they were living together, and this is when he moves out and he goes to the Indio house alone. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's right. He basically, she doesn't want to have anything to do with this guy, and he's like, no, no, he's fine. He's fine. You just don't like him. And she's like, yeah, of he's course stealing I from don't. you. <laughs> he's stealing from you. And he's weird, and he's like dressing like you. It's strange. Yeah. Um, oh man, this guy is. He's disturbing. a real piece of work. So like he goes out ahead of Al and in because he's supposed to start getting the place ready, but he just lives there high on the hog. He resells all the supplies that had been bought and just doesn't do shit all. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't do any of the work he's contracted to do. And um, like by the time Al is heading out there, he already knows that Fred is a disaster and he's going to kick him out like he's on his way to confront him and kick him out he he tells his brother that yeah he's like i'm gonna i'm gonna go there i'm gonna just i'm gonna get rid of him um he owes me a bunch of money and uh we're, we're gonna hash it out yeah and his brother ken's like just wait for me i'll i'll go with you 
but of course he doesn't. And then when the brother does show up shortly after looking for Al, Fred says he's out looking at a car. And then he's just yeah. always looking at a car and he, he doesn't come back. And Fred well, starts. Now he's at his property <laughs> on Texas. Yeah. And, and Fred starts he's... wearing all of Al's clothes and driving all his cars. And nobody's seen Al. And it gets to about three weeks. Uh, and uh, Al's jacuzzi, which uh, was like, they don't really get into it, but it was like a real source of peace for him. Yeah, it suggested um, it was a real prized possession, the, the jacuzzi. Yeah. Uh, he just uh, takes it out of the, like, has it removed from the basement and uh, just pours in a whole bunch of cement instead. And yeah. then tiles over it. And he says that Al moved away, but he left all the dogs behind, which yeah. Al obviously wouldn't do because we we've already established that Al's a big dog guy. Yeah, yeah, and the uh, the the lady uh, the housekeeper. housekeeper, I guess, was trying to feed the dogs, and Fred wouldn't let her. Yeah, and he starts like muscling them off the property. He takes away her mailbox. What a dick move. Yeah, real dick move. Uh, puts his own mailbox in that's locked so that no he one can, can get all the credit mail. cards and stuff coming in Al's name, of course, yeah. like more ways to defraud. So, of course, the housekeeper calls Al's brother, Ken. He's like, hey, things are really fucked up here. And when Fred won't let Ken in, Fred calls the cops. And, of course, Fred drives off, stealing Al's truck before the police arrive for their search. Yeah, so they're they're searching. Um, with the housekeeper. With the housekeeper. They see that the beds in the upstairs have been changed, basically. It's not... New mattress and new comforter. New mattress and new comforter. And that's... Uh, no, that's not when the housekeeper loses it. Um, it's no. It's when yeah, it's it's later, but like the jacuzzi room they notice is all destroyed, and they dig up the cement, and of course there he is. There he is. Um, yep. So they they find that he like he'd probably been hit in the head with a hammer by Fred. Uh, they trace the stolen credit cards and the cars pretty easily to Fred Fulford in Florida where he was with the housekeeper's sister, Rosa, I think, and her kid. And her kid. It's crazy. So like, trying to figure out how they can catch this guy without him finding out that they're looking for him, because they figure, well, because he is a danger to, to those, to the to the sister and the daughter. Right. Uh, but they, they do manage to get a hold of him without too much difficulty, and he is currently in jail. Uh, although he still claims complete innocence, although I have no idea what kind of leg he stands on. Like, I don't even follow his explanation of it. His own lawyer says, like, it's not even a shadow of a doubt. There is no doubt. No. Yeah, it, it was obvious. Yeah. Although it seems too clean for Sam. Sam still finds it all suspicious. He's still saying, uh, I don't know, but aliens, maybe. <laughs> yeah, well, because he... he... Still thinks Al uh, pissed off a different wrong person with the alien stuff, which... I guess so. It was Fred. I, it was it Fred. Was, it was Fred. It definitely was Fred. 
hundred percent it was Fred. He, he's a construction guy. He he put the concrete there. He knows about the cement. Like how he had been stealing with him and trying to replace him in his life for some time. Like it's um, it's pretty cut and dry. <laughs> and, and he basically said, "Well, no, I earned those cars because he owed me money, and I didn't steal. But even if I did, it was okay." And even if it wasn't, he deserved it. And even if he didn't deserve it, you know, it, it was it's bad argument. Yeah, it wasn't it's a really. Me. Yeah, it's it's a really bittersweet ending, especially because we we get uh, Sam talking about how Al had finally just gotten to go to the early horror festivals and was really feeling the love at those and and just yeah. like was really into those. And it's like, oh man, Al Adamson would have been such a cool dude on the horror festival circuit. Yeah, it's just like I have fans in England. He phones them up. Yeah, because he's just, just such a humble, sweet dude. Yeah, and he's talking about that at the end. Like they they finally get to like that last interview of his, and he's like, "We weren't making pictures to win Academy Awards. We just wanted to entertain people," which uh, is just a real good mission statement for That's the Al Adamson pictures. Yeah, they're. They're weird. They're funky. They don't really fit together right, but they're entertaining. Because it's just like, oh, we're always to trying watch. to do something entertaining at all times. Oh, yeah. And from what, I, from what I've seen, I'd, I'd say he succeeded. Yeah, I mean, I really love them. Some of them are very bad. <laughs> you oh, know, a sure. lot of them are very bad. Uh, but it's fascinating watching them, especially watching a bunch of them together and kind of getting a feel for his particular style and just the weird types of exploitation that it sort of delves into over those periods. Like you see the trends of exploitation from the late sixties to the mid seventies, just all play out. <laughs> yeah. Cause he was always on top of whatever was current. Hmm. Even if it means meant having to like cut one of his movies in half and jam some more stuff in there make it just completely incoherent and bizarre it doesn't matter <laughs> if cares? it entertains people if it gets the butts and seats that's all that matters well i, I love um, early on uh they mentioned one of his like his first film that was a total flop and he's just hmm. he just says well well that one didn't work out and yeah i just love that attitude it's like oh well that one didn't work yeah it, it just it wasn't it wasn't what the uh, people wanted We'll we'll move on to the next one. Yeah, yeah. maybe the next one will work. Some some will, some won't. It's just like that. Yeah, a very pragmatic, classic independent filmmaker. I I, I believe they describe him as the genius of exploitation filmmaking, and I do feel that that's appropriate. Like he he's just the ultimate exploitation filmmaker. He he was brilliant at it. Well, um, I mean, I like I love Cinderella two thousand, even though it was ridiculous it's a hell of a thing uh so before we move on to our second part we want to decide which film from the al adamson collection we'd like to do next at some point not next week but in yeah the future. yeah but at some point um well uh why don't we just go maybe just so that, to keep it kind of simple just in the order of how they're displayed on the back of the box. So we had Blood and Flesh first, and the next one will be Female Bunch, followed by Psycho Agogo. All right, so next up, Female Bunch, uh, the the one with the, the reshoots at Spawn Ranch. 
That'll be interesting. Oh, that's the one. Oh, yeah. okay. And it has uh, Russ Tamblin with the, the cross on his forehead and stuff, as I recall. That one's a, that one's a pretty wild one. All right, cool, cool. All right, uh, so anything further before we head on to part two? Yeah, I wish he didn't die. And oh, it's such a bummer. Because he, he seems like die, such a good I, dude. Yeah, if he had to die, I wish it had been aliens. Yeah, the, the alien He was not story, killed by aliens. Yeah, but the, the alien story is uh, more fun. It's true. Oh, yeah. it's, it's more, yeah. you know, like, you've seen Life of Pi, right? I haven't. Oh, I thought I thought I watched that with you. Uh, it's it's okay. the The whole ending of it, the, there's this whole story and it's talking about how, uh, the, like the final line is something about how it's it's just more interesting and it's more uh, life is more acceptable with God as part of it. I that that's that's how I feel, but uh, with aliens. Uh, it, the story is just more fun if it's aliens. <laughs> I'd rather have the story include aliens. Yeah. Not God. That's fine. Oh, <laughs> aliens will do just, just fine. Thanks. Give, just give God a starship and let him get the fuck out of there. <laughs> the movement. I don't know what he needs it for. But... <laughs> All right. Uh, on to part two. And we are back for part two, where we're going to be talking about Stanley Kubrick's 1980 film, The Shining. Uh, one of my favorite independent film nobody's heard of. Eh, yeah, yeah, just a little <laughs> small picture, a flop. Well, no, I, I guess it was actually pretty successful when it came out, but uh, unsuccessful critically. It was absolutely trounced by critics. It was uh, it makes no sense. Actors. It's crazy. Like at the time, uh, Stephen King was vocally against it as well, uh, and we'll we'll sort of get into that as we talk about the movie because uh, he didn't like the, especially the treatment of uh, the character of Jack Torrance and Jack Nicholson playing the character because he felt that he's just too crazy all the time and he's just he's just too bad of a guy, and you know the character is kind of autobiographical and was sort of based on Stephen King and he didn't like the idea of him being. Uh, unsalvageable. Well, um, maybe he should have wrote more than one sentence over and over again. Stephen, all work and no play. This, this isn't going anywhere. So, this is your first time seeing the picture. This is my first time seeing The Shining. I somehow I managed to avoid it completely, not on purpose. It just never crossed my path and i never sought it out for 40 years it's uh definitely one of my favorite movies i've seen it so many times uh oh, it's really good it, it's one i watch every year in december or january because it's it's such a snowy movie such a beautifully snowy movie like even though the the snow is dangerous and it ultimately is deadly uh there it's just so beautiful all all of the snowy atmosphere of this movie it does winter better than most movies very rare to see something this wintry true true this is a real uh, <laughs> yeah uh i've definitely they definitely understand that winter is more than just some white stuff on the ground and people wearing santa hats 
it's a it's a very very snowy movie uh so we open with the incredible drive up uh the first of two drives up to the overlook uh, yeah so much of this movie is just watching people move from place to place and it's this one is well, no this one isn't zen it would be zen if it wasn't for the score but something actually really terrible is happening i don't know what the score is so good wendy carlos absolutely tremendous uh very ominous synth score just these booming chords as uh, we have this incredible helicopter shot of the car going up the mountains and it's it's yeah it's a long shot too yeah like we follow the car through a lot of uh landscape before we get to the overlook and and i i guess that's sort of why we see so much movement from place to place and people sort of just going in circles in the same places is it just sort of constantly reinforces the scope of these distances and how far the overlook hotel is from anything yeah how how far away help is it's um it's like one of the most important things for a horror setting is uh, isolation you have to know that help is not available which is why um well i always say it uh, which is why the nostromo is such a great horror setting um mm-hmm. the antarctica for the thing uh, even assault on precinct 13 they've established a way that help is not coming this is a weird dead zone in southern california yeah and, and here like help is not coming we it established if anything needs to be well we'll get to it but we establish uh they just don't bother clearing the clearing the roads yeah and they also mentioned that it's in the same region where the donner party took place the the whole disaster there yeah that that whole thing which was you know people snowed in over a winter and having to resort to cannibalism to survive although the amount of cannibalism is often oversold uh yeah it's more just a bunch of people starving to death in really horrible winter conditions with nothing (laughs) because they took some they, they went the wrong way they took some bad directions they took some bad directions so uh, first, we have Jack Torrance, uh, Jack Nicholson playing Jack Torrance. Uh, quite Jack a performance a in this movie. He is a writer. Uh, or so, we, so we're so we led to believe. We don't see him write much. We do see him drink. That, that's one of the main prerequisites. Uh, and he is a Stephen King character. <laughs> he's, he's very distinctly a Stephen King character. He's a drinker. He's a writer. Uh, he has... He loves his family, but he is not always good to them uh, He, as much as he uh, wishes to, ultimately. Uh, it's just sometimes he can't be. <laughs> yeah, well, well, even when they're talking about the Donner Party, he's got this weird... This, this weird way about how he describes it, and, and he hasn't even gone crazy yet. Yeah, like one of the things I've heard about the way this movie was made in in terms of Jack Nicholson's performance is they would do a few takes. You know, Kubrick was not like Al Adamson. Kubrick was a many takes guy. Kubrick was a 150 takes until we get it exactly right kind of guy. Not so much on this project. This is one where he was kind of 
a little bit more streamlined because this was him coming back from Barry Lyndon, which was a huge bomb. And he was like distinctly picking a Stephen King property. These were big at the time. They were making a lot of money. He's like, this is going to get me back in the good graces of the studio. Okay. And it did. Okay. <laughs> so with Nicholson, he would do a, a couple normal takes and then he'd do one completely over the top take. It's the over-the-top takes that were kept in the movie. All of them, pretty much, you know? And you, you can feel it. Like, they're all big. Like, they're all weird. Like, every time he's doing a scene, he's doing something very bizarre. Isolation is what I'm looking for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just perfect for me, though. <laughs> and I, I really love just the... Seeing the the Overlook Hotel bustling with the last of its winter traffic when he goes up to do the interview for the their caretaker position. Yeah, and it's just get used to it because there's not going to be a lot of uh, a lot of human traffic from here on. Oh my gosh, it's so busy though. It's crazy, and there there's just tons of people everywhere. Uh, one of the things that they talk about in the room 237 documentary which is fascinating just fascinating super fandom of people just reading too much into a movie but still picking at some interesting points in it uh the the office like the the guy who where he does the interview yeah this office doesn't make sense in terms of uh the the floor plan it it doesn't it can't exist <laughs> with the way the rest of the 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 hotel is set up. Uh, I'm I'm not sure I follow. Why why is that? Because like we see the path they take to get to it. We know where it's supposed to be, and the place that it's situated, there couldn't possibly be a window. <laughs> uh... uh. So it's it's one of the there and there's a lot of creative geography in this and. I don't think most of it is necessarily intentional, but I think some of it definitely is. Because we do have sequences where uh, Danny in particular is, you know, driving around on his uh, his his three-wheeler, his big wheel. Oh, yeah, and he just teleports. Yeah, he kind of teleports. Like, he'll he'll be on a different floor than he started out on in, in some sequences. And they just kind of hide the cut in there somewhere, and that's interesting like they're they're just kind of making the geography of the overlook hotel a non-logical and non-linear space which makes sense for the way the thing works and they don't really highlight it they just make it this weird sequence of him going in circles literally but not actually ending up in the same place which is cool yeah yeah but anyway he he meets with the manager and the manager tells him about the previous caretaker, Charles Grady. And how he killed his, uh, was it the two kids? Two daughters and the wife. With an axe. Uh, yeah, and then killed himself, uh, shot himself in the head, I think. Uh, and it, it's interesting that they're played by twins, very iconically in the movie, because mm -hmm. they're not twins in the book or in the script or even like in the dialogue. Oh, really? 
Yeah, the 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 manager says they're. I think they're aged about eight and ten. Didn't. <laughs> it's weird, but you know it looks cool. You know the the oh, twins yeah, thing be... adds an interesting visual element that's very iconic. Like everybody copies this shot. Oh yeah, yeah well. The shots. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Actually, yeah, they're everywhere. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's just kind of fun. And and it's one of those things like Kubrick was not <laughs> making a really consistent reality with this. He was making this kind of quick. He was intentionally doing things that just kind of fucked with the reality of it, I feel. Hey, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So As, I feel like this manager character uh, would have fit right in in uh, Joe versus the Volcano as one of those characters. Yeah. It's it's a great little one scene performance too. He he's very positive and vigorous, <laughs> but uh-huh. but also very um like ah uh, yes like, oh, yeah. I understand why they wouldn't have told you about this. There there was there was some nasty business. Uh, listen, <laughs> uh, you're not gonna have any problems with that, are you? No, of course not. <laughs> yeah yeah, and and Nicholson's reaction is weird because like you would think. It's like, you're not going to have any problems with that. It's like, no, no, I don't have any problems sleeping in a hotel where one person was murdered. But he's like, oh, you won't have to worry about me doing that. (laughs) And he does it really big. He's like, ah, some isolation is exactly what I need. (laughs) It's like, have, have you already become the Joker? And this was Stephen King's major complaint about the movie. He feels that. Jack Nicholson starts at crazy and just continually escalates from there. And it's it's not reasonable that like there there's no there there's no surprise as he loses his mind. But like I don't feel like there was gonna be surprise in it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it's interesting because it is a movie that is extremely about abusive relationships. Oh and like so much, yeah so deeply about that and it's interesting to do it this way and it's like no the warning signs are there they're visible all the time just look for them (laughs) well and it's interesting because him being this way at the beginning kind of makes me wonder was it ghosts or did he just go crazy yeah and a lot of this movie does leave that interpretation open until it doesn't like there, there is a certain point at which it becomes definitely a ghost. Oh story. yes, yes. Um, well, there's there's a couple of points where they establish beyond a doubt that the uh, is it magic, isn't it magic, is. Uh, yeah. they, they do it really early on with the kid too. Yeah, the, definitely some magic and ghosts going on here, and then ultimately a lot. Uh, so meanwhile, while he's doing his interview back in Boulder, we see Danny having a premonition. The this is the blood out of the elevator shot that very uh, famous, very famous. I, I knew this shot. This is like about one of maybe three things I knew about the movie. Well, like the original trailer for the movie, like the teaser trailer just was the blood in the elevator without any scenes from the movie yeah that's it's cool but he yeah. knew how freaking iconic that was gonna be <laughs> yes yeah so so danny sees that he sees 
I, I think he sees a flash of the twins, too. I think maybe. And maybe room 237. Like, he he's seeing some stuff. He's getting a premonition of what's to come if they yeah. when they take this job. Yeah. So uh, Danny has this uh, imaginary friend named Tony. Who, he's a little uh, boy who lives in the back of my mouth. Yeah, yeah. And he talks like this. <laughs> Good to meet you, Mrs. Torrance. Nice to meet you, Mrs. Torrance. Uh, so, like, a doctor comes to check on Danny, and we hear about Jack having uh, injured Danny previously while drunk, and that's when he quit alcohol. But, but it was an accident. Anyone could have done it. It could have happened to anyone. Yeah, she's very carefully making excuses for, like, oh, it was, you know, it's just the the one of those things. It you know, could have happened to anyone. You know, you do it a thousand times. This the uh, the lady playing the doctor. I really like her too. She's um, cool. She feels like a real doctor. Like she's really asking. Like you can tell she's not. She knows how to get the information out of the person, rather than just saying straight up. Like at the beginning of it, like, like yeah, she's starting off with did, did Jack hit did Jack hit Danny. Yeah, she's very good at coaxing the information out. Yeah, the, this is the the actress is in very few things. I know her daughter is a singer now. Um, what's her name? Uh, Nelly something. Oh, not Nelly Furtado. <laughs> that's, that's who I was gonna say. I I should know it. I can't remember. It's it's not coming to me, but I should know. I have her albums. Uh oh. but she's yeah, she's her her daughter is a pretty cool singer. It's it's kind of an interesting scene we get some important background on sort of the situation in the family and we learn a bit about the dynamic with how we learn the information with, you know, Wendy is making excuses for him. She's like, eh, "It wasn't, you know, he he didn't mean to do it. It was it was just uh, a, a tiny accident. An accident and he never he never touched a drop of alcohol since right which no he he really does seem to not have uh and and that's the thing is, is that uh he gets ghost drunk later and and that's kind oh, of you're right yes uh, and it's he, the first time that's right because he can't get drunk at all because there is no actual alcohol there because which is no part of no... right it's part of the actual allure for him right him yeah being well yes there. It, it it takes that temptation completely away so he can theoretically focus on his novel theoretically yeah, um, it's around here that we find proof that danny's imaginary friend is at least something like actual some kind of power maybe not actually a little boy that lives in his mouth but because he's talking to his to tony and he's like i wonder if dad will get the job he already did he will call in a few minutes and then calls immediately after right could be right. a coincidence but probably not mm-hmm. and it's 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 during that exchange that he is given the premonition and that's when the doctor's called and everything yeah, yeah, because I guess we don't see it, but he, I guess he had a seizure. Right. And then we we catch up with them heading back up. So we, we get the next drive up with the whole fam. 
and this is where Jack explains uh, what the Donner Party was to their little boy and does not sugarcoat about the cannibalism. They ate each other up. <laughs> yeah, yep. that's right. <coughs> Excuse me. So they get up there and Danny meets Dick Halloran, the head cook, uh, played by the great Scatman Crothers. This is where uh, we get the title of the story. The Shining. Shining. Now, I, I kind of I kind of recall how that how that came out. Like the the spirits take a shine to you is well, how he, he describes it. He he said it's just that that's what he and his grandmother called it. They they would shine to each other. Uh, the, the, he and his grandmother called it shining. Because right. he and his grandmother also had this, like they they would just communicate telepathically all the time. Uh, so, and he recognizes that Danny also has this ability, and he tells Danny that the hotel kinda has its own version of it, like as a space. Yeah, now this is interesting. We we didn't mention, but the hotel, in addition to the murder happening, uh, was built on a, an Indian burial ground because because like everything, everything we've ever built. Is. Yeah, I mean that's that's sort of what North America is. It's it's built yes. on that. Uh, yeah, but yeah, but... And they they mention specific like this is kind of a parallel thing that's happening at the same time. Uh, the the manager is taking Jack and Wendy on a tour of the grounds and telling them this stuff. Yeah, uh, and he mentions that during the building of the hotel, they were fending off native attacks. Yeah, so so this was obviously a pretty important site for them. Or, yeah, and know, or just, just like extremely cursed. Yeah, <laughs> from the beginning. From yeah, from the get go. Back to Danny, he asks, like after the explanation of the shining, he asks, "What's in room two thirty seven? Nothing. In, nothing. Nothing's in there. But also, don't go in. Uh, just, just don't even. Just no. There's just nothing in stay there. Stay away from there. Nothing you need to know about in there." Uh, but something happened in room 237, something bad. Someone died. Uh, and there there seemed to be a few deaths uh, associated with the place. And it just seems to be a place of high-class debauchery. Like, yeah. we, we also see uh, the manager talking about, oh, yeah, I mean, we've had royalty here. And he's like, all the best people. <laughs> and... Like just the the list of things he gets, it does make me think of like a Jeffrey Epstein <laughs> instead. So it it has a certain flavor to it that maybe it didn't necessarily have in 1980, but I think it was still leaning that way. Yeah, I I kind of picked that up too. Um, I was like, oh yeah, all the uh, are they all in the hotel's little black book? I mean, presumably. Do they get on the private helicopter? It was a private jet, but, you know. Right. Here it's a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. So they leave, and then we have the... We, we pick up, like, quite a bit later. It, it jumps ahead fairly far in time. Like, I think it's maybe a full month or so of them having lived there. Yes, it's one month later. They've... Um, settled in whatever <laughs> to the uh to their new life and it seems kind of crappy yeah i mean it seems not too too bad they they do have a gigantic kitchen it's just 
there we have a very long sequence of uh, Wendy bringing, I think it's coffee or, or breakfast or whatever to Jack. Yeah, it's a, it's a long way to go because you know everything is so far away from it, everything else. I I also I guess going back slightly, but I do really like the sequence where Scatman Crothers shows Wendy around the walk-in cooler and the freezer and like lists all of the food they have. Yeah. I just really like those sequences. I, I, I find them charming. I find him really fun to listen to. Oh, yeah. And, and we haven't seen the last of them. Kind of, yeah. And we'll, we'll, he'll, he'll be back. And so at this point, we're seeing Jack kind of starting to dissociate. Like, he's getting weird. He's getting really angry. Yeah, we, we see a lot of him sitting at his typewriter not doing anything or or him like in the typewriter room uh throwing a ball throwing a ball but not not fun throwing a ball no, angrily it's throwing a bad throwing a ball or like just staring blankly out the window in with like just a hor- horrible grimace on his face when uh Danny and Wendy are out exploring the hedge maze how can you be having fun when i have a contract he doesn't say any of this but i'm just imagining what's running through his mind which a lot of it probably doesn't make sense anyway you know but a, a lot of you can't be having fun while i'm stuck in here trying to write a novel and it's it's weird because he doesn't want them around anyway so <laughs> yeah. uh but there, there's that really incredible shot there where we see them in the center of the hedge maze and it's this incredibly huge crane shot that they've uh kind of cross-faded with the model of it that's in yeah, in the hotel that's, that's so a just, really neat shot yeah it just looks unbelievably far up uh really cool uh, the hedge maze is a very cool location this is something original to the movie it's not in the book it's gigantic it's terrifying terrifying especially in the snow like, if it was just a summer day, it probably wouldn't be so bad. But in, like, you know, torrential, or not torrential, but, like, you know, gigantic snowfall, six feet of snow, that's yeah. that's very scary. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it can take you hours to get out if you get lost. Yeah, because it's just absolutely gigantic. Uh, and so around this time as well, we have Danny starting to experience things going on in the hotel like the the shining of the hotel is starting to grab him so we, we've seen uh the 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 twins the grady twins showing up a few times oh yeah well, he just sees them and he just backs his tricycle away <laughs> well they're like come play with us danny and then we we get flashes of them all uh axed oh, yeah. to death. Yeah, that's right. We get the flashes of, yeah, yeah, flashes of that. And, and then, of like, course, no, thank you. Yeah, just back he's, away he's slowly. Not. And we also just see him kind of going in circles a lot. Him just sort of riding the, uh, the the big wheel, in he just huge must arcs. Be so bored. He yeah, he's definitely bored. Uh, they're all kind of going stir crazy, but they don't. We don't see it build up, which is interesting. We just see pressure points. Yeah, yeah. We just see. Well, here's where they're at now, 
and then here's where they're at now. Yeah, and and it it's progressively smaller iterations of time, which is a really cool way of doing it, where we just see we're heading towards something. Uh, each each date or amount of time we get marks a smaller time period, which suggests that when we get to the smallest time period, things are just going to be happening in a row really fast. Turns out that is exactly what happens, yes. Yes, exactly. Uh, even though this is a very long movie, it doesn't feel super long. It moves very quickly. It has this very strong sense of acceleration through the whole course. Even though so much of it is still them moving, just going from one place to the next, it it's weird how it works, but it works. Well, yeah, there, there's a lot of circularity. They're repeating patterns because, you know, that that is what, again, getting into the theme of the movie with the, the abusive relationship stuff, those are circular patterns where you're just stuck in these loops of behavior. And that's kind of what they're doing here. That's what they're doing locked in this hotel with nothing else to do but get into these abusive loops. You know what? You know, I really feel for anyone who has been in lockdown with uh, with an abusive partner. I can't imagine how difficult that must be. Yeah, and that's like The Shining that's... is a lockdown movie. So yeah. it's, it, it, it really has that added resonance now, thinking about that element. Like... Because we see Jack getting progressively more and more angry with no real provocation of any kind. He's I... just got nothing else to do but get mad. That, that, was, that was me in lockdown. <laughs> yeah. all, all work and no play makes Shanna something something. Yeah. So, like, we, we have the, that fight where Wendy comes in to see him typing and he quickly, you know, pulls out the thing and crumples it and throws it away because it's uh, it's probably just him typing all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. That won't be revealed for a little bit yet, but he types it a lot. Yeah, it's, it's a good chance that that's what he's that that's what that is. But maybe it was the actual work and he just threw it away because he didn't want her to see it. I don't think he's doing any actual work. Oh, you're right. You're <laughs> I, right. I'm he's pretty a sure. Writer in quotation marks. Uh, and she just comes in. I, I think this is when she comes to give him coffee, and he just sort of has a whole flip out. <laughs> like when I'm in here, you don't. Oh God, no! I can't even do it. But yeah, he, he's doing a whole thing. I was like, I when I'm in here, you don't come in because I'm working. Even if you hear me typing, if you don't hear me typing and blah, 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 blah. Uh, and a lot more swearing too of course yeah and um it really she, reminded me actually of that scene from the phantom thread yeah uh, where she brings up the milk and it's like you've interrupted me it's like okay well i'll leave but the interruption remains <laughs> yeah i love that movie i kind of rewatch that movie i don't but <laughs> it's a good movie yeah you do sometime soon so she has this big thing with him and so she's starting to keep Danny away from him and like there there's a sequence where they're having breakfast or dinner or something time's all sort of disconnected oh yeah yeah it's winter it's just blue it could be any time of day and the snow is basically covering the first floor of the hotel like uh, from the outside 
Yeah. Uh, and th- there's a part where like he wants to go get his fire truck from the room and he his mom doesn't want him to go in there. It's like dad has just been randomly up all night doing God knows what. Yeah, and he's sleeping. Don't wake him up. Don't wake him up. Don't wake daddy. It's th- this is this thing. This whole place is a powder keg. You you don't even understand. Uh, but he goes in and I'll it's, be it's real quiet. Be very Dude, quiet. you can't be quiet enough. But he goes in and it's an incredibly eerie moment where he walks in and Jack Nicholson is just sitting there on the bed staring <laughs> just awake but like dead eyed completely motionless blank and like this <laughs> just I mean all of it is such a mood of this whole just depression anxiety and abuse just it, it's all so real even though oh, like the characters yeah. are so heightened there there's just like these little moments of just like man that uh him him just blankly staring just completely shut off is is very very real uh-huh. and then what happens does he like see yeah he he gets Danny to come over and uh, talk and, to him ugh. and he, like they they sit together and it's just super uncomfortable and he's like Daddy, you would never hurt mommy and me, would you? He takes way too long to answer that. And he's like, well, like first, his his first concern is that mommy had put that in his head. Right. But like, he doesn't, of course, realize that the way he's acting might put that in his head. Yeah. That, you know, that that wouldn't be an issue there or anything. So there's like a, a whole bunch of sequences like this. We we have isolated moments of family deterioration that are completely non-supernatural. We we just see yes. things degrading. And then finally Danny goes into room 237. He is big wheeling around the place and he rolls up to 237 and the door is open and unlocked. Uh, which you don't want to see. Out. He's just hanging out and he's like, huh. Let's He's go check that out. Rude 237. Yeah. Uh, and he goes in, which uh, he really shouldn't have done. He should have listened to Dick. Should have. Should have. Uh, also should have listened to Tony. Oh, yeah. I mean, Tony also Tony told him, like, don't go don't even, Well, Tony was like, don't even go to the hotel. Right. This whole thing, just no. Yeah. Oh, the way he does it, it's like, it's like, why? What's wrong? And Tony's like, I don't know. Yes, you do. I don't want to say. He's like, show me. And that's when he has a seizure. Right. Okay. But the, yeah, that's that's like at the beginning. Yeah. Uh, and we. Oh, I, I forgot to mention that there's also the part in there where Jack is just like, or no, I guess this is at the same point because Jack is screaming and lying on the floor and he's having a nightmare in the middle of the writing room. About having killed the family. Yeah, right. And, and I think she, Wendy, comes in and he tells she's her that comforting dream. him at first because, like, he's going through the dream and she's a little troubled by it. And that's when Danny shows up, having been attacked by the ghost. Well, attacked by something anyway. He's got very, uh, he's got red strangle marks on his neck. 
yes, he has been strangled. Uh, and at first, Wendy makes the pretty reasonable conclusion that Jack did it because he's just been having this screaming chaotic nightmare about killing them that he's just told her. And then Danny shows up beat up and they're in an incredibly isolated place with no one around for ever. <laughs> yeah. She screams at him. You did it. And he, his reaction is he's he's really flabbergasted he's quite taken aback it is so but like this is a this is like the one time he's not over the top yeah he, he's, he's he's surprised he's yeah. hurt <laughs> he's just like oh oh yeah like that's right he actually says oh and then he's kind of he and this is when he starts gaslighting her about it he goes to room 237. Right. Yeah. He goes to 237. And here uh, he sees the random hot girl. Yeah. Sexy lady in the tub. And she comes out and they're going to make out. They make. They are. They do make out. They make out. And he looks in the mirror and sees that she's dead. That yeah. She's actually a gross bloated drowny corpse yeah she died in the bathtub at some point yep uh and she's the one who strangled danny she's the the corpse in room 237 but what he does is he goes back to wendy and he's like danny must have did it himself there was nothing in there at all there that's (sighs) it's just pure gaslighting there is nothing further to it he is just wanting to get control over her in this way and it's it's weird it's it's kind of this most it's a terrifying element it's it's, there's no it's it's evil yeah it's very very frightening and this is when he starts getting ghost drunk because he goes to the bar and he finds lloyd the bartender who i guess is just some bartender he actually knows like not a ghost who necessarily belongs to the hotel, but like some some classic bartender that he knew from some place. Like what, 1921 maybe? <laughs> but yeah, hey, you never know. Well, like you get the impression that it's a guy he has some sort of history with because he says, you were always the best, Lloyd. The best of them all. Yeah, maybe. Like it's either that or his history has started to merge with that of with the hotel the, yeah that, and that's the, more what i got out of this yeah it, it could be either one or it could be that this isn't the first time he's having <clears throat> this hallucination it could be and then you have a whole month and a week at this point right and and then this is when like the whole giant fucking gold ballroom fills up with ghosts including delbert grady who comes and spills a bunch of uh what is it uh it's that it's that egg yolk liqueur. Oh, I I, I don't know. <sighs> oh, terribly sorry, sir. Let's get you cleaned up. Uh, ad advocate. It's a advocate. Yeah, okay. and he, he spills a bunch of on it. It's, it's very yellow stuff. It's a liqueur made with egg yolks. Uh, it, it and he just gets it all over him. 
So they have to go into the the bathroom to clean it off, and they have a really weird conversation. I think you need... I think your wife and child are plotting to leave you. I think you need to correct this behavior, sir, if you don't mind my saying. And, like, slowly, slowly, Jack comes... Yeah, yeah, it goes... Well, he doesn't lead with this. It, It takes a while to get there. This... And, yeah, but, yeah, he's kind of, like, he's coming around to this idea of having to correct their behavior. Just as I corrected my wife and children. Because, like, Jack starts to gradually realize that he's Grady, the, the former caretaker. And he's like, you were the caretaker here. And he's like, no, sir, you're the caretaker here. You've always, always been, the caretaker been the caretaker here. here. Just We're really going to cool. talk about that, because I have things to say about that later. It's very eerie. Uh, and it's it's interesting that Grady, rather than being the caretaker figure, has become the butler of the hotel. He He's a butler yeah. now. That's sort of his deal as a ghost. I, I wonder if that's like a demotion, a promotion, <laughs> in, in terms of like the ghostly wait staff. And well, at this point... I was still thinking it could be a crazy Jack hallucination. Right, I suppose. Uh, at this but point, it could go either way. Um, but this is also... later, but... Yeah. Yes. So this also is when Wendy finds the manuscript. <laughs> the quote-unquote yeah. manuscript. And uh, it's creepier than I thought it would be, even though I knew exactly what was coming. And the reason why is because it's not uniform. It has typos... It's every done different page. ways every time. Sometimes there, they're double spaced, sometimes they're single spaced. It's it's very impressive because all of them look different. Like she we we spend a long time on it. I, I had a, a teacher in high school who talked about this scene in terms of suspense that is stretched to a point that it becomes absurd and laughable, but keeps stretching until it becomes scary again. Yeah, and this is that. Exactly, this is the scene that he cited where she's looking at all of these papers and they all say, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. And nothing else, but over and over and over. And And sometimes there's like not even spacing. It's just 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 one word jumbled together. It's a huge block. Or there'll be be in pyramids, there'll be in like quote blocks, all sorts of stuff. And there's just so many of them. We see her just looking at page after page after page and reaction shots of her just getting more and more upset by seeing the same thing over and over. There must be hundreds of these. Like, but it's, uh, it's so great. It's It works because it's all different. If it was just Xeroxed, it wouldn't work the same. Right. Just that someone went through the effort of individually designing different pages of all the same words over and over and over it it adds so much to it and like the score is doing a hell of a lot too the score is just working away like crazy and then of course jack comes busting imagining him like typing this it must have taken him so long it's like it's what he's been doing the whole time triangle like this is all he's been doing the whole time they've been there yeah uh, and then Jack comes in and like 
this is when there there's the famous give me the bad wendy give me the bad <laughs> and, and i and because i am so such a millennial who grew up on the simpsons i completely expected him to say all work and no play makes jack something something <laughs> right the the it's like i'm cool. i'm trying to think of a title <laughs> So they scuffle over the bat, and uh, Wendy ultimately just won't deal with his shit anymore and hits him in the head and knocks him out. And yep. she drags him to the kitchen and locks him in the pantry. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as she's going, he's he starts waking up and he starts laughing at her because he's already sabotaged the only ways out. Yeah, uh, a while ago we saw him... Um... Oh, now we're at like Thursday or something, not one week later. Yeah, we're on. Or maybe we're on. Yeah, I think it's like Thursday or something. I think this one might actually be like 8 a.m. or something. 8 a.m. Oh, it could I, be. Oh, no, because be. that's no, that that's probably the last day. Maybe that is here because uh, it's somewhere around. It, it's already past the point where Danny first contacts Dick. Oh, yeah, yeah. He So he's contacting Dick, who's got this sweet house. Great pad. I not see much of it, but I thought it was part of the hotel. I yeah, like, I guess it's in Miami. In the basement of the hotel? No, yeah, it's in Miami. Yeah, he's in Miami. He's got a bunch of great paintings. Uh, okay, he's got a real paintings. swinging pad. He's got a whole bar when we see the other room. Yeah, and now he's trying to... First phone the hotel, uh, but the lines are down and no one's ever going to fix them until until spring. So yeah, and then he he's knows that. Call the, yeah, and then he's trying to call the park rangers and get them to radio. Uh, but yeah, Jack just at some point in there just took the fuses out of the out of the thing. And that, that yeah, and that's actually a scene we saw. We yeah. we saw him just take the the cells out of the radio, so it's just dismantled. And then Wendy runs out to see the snowcat where he's, you know, chopped the distributor cap off or something. Yeah, he, he chopped he chopped the wires. Yeah. Um, which so is that's not to going make anywhere. It, yeah, it's not going nowhere. Yeah. And Danny is just kind of locked in a fugue. This is where we have the red rum scene. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, the famous red rum, red rum, red rum, red rum. Red rum. Danny uh, isn't here, Mrs. Torrance. And he writes red rum and lipstick on the door. And then Wendy sees it in the mirror and she realizes it's murder. And like most movies, if I saw that, it would look very stupid because <laughs> that doesn't sound like scary at all. That sounds very ridiculous. I, I don't know how it's pulled off here. I really don't understand it, but it works. Part of it is the kid. The this is I think it's be both the best the child actor I've ever seen. He is great. He is so good. I, I think a lot of it is also Shelley Duvall, who is also oh, fantastic. Yeah. Like, all of the performances in this movie are tremendous. All three of them. Well, no, yeah. more than that. But well, yeah, like, they, but those three. three especially. Like, they're, they're all, like, amazing core performances. Mm-hmm. And just, like, Wendy's... Or, uh, like, Shelley Duvall as Wendy, her reactions... They sell the the fright of it because she just seems so genuinely terrified. Like, it, it just makes it feel more real. Yeah. So I think this is the part where Jack's, like, starting to come to. 
Yeah, well, the the goat, uh, the ghost of Grady comes and lets him out. Yes, that's exactly what happens. He's like, oh, you've really fucked up this one, haven't you, sir? No, no, I'm going to get him. I don't think you will. No, I'm going to. Yeah, it's, it's then, coming. Like, me and the other ghouls think you aren't really committed to the killing your family plan, Homer. <laughs> <laughs> this yeah. is, I guess, the first part where it's definitely ghosts in yes. Jack's storyline. Because he is, is let out by the ghosts. He is let out. You hear somebody move, unlock the the uh, the pantry and right. let him out. While he's talking to this Grady. And then he gets and, the axe and he goes hunting. <laughs> yep. This so, is where we get uh, the big famous scene. The, so the, does here's Johnny, Johnny comes come first? Uh, basically. Or more, yeah. Oh yeah, well it would have to be before the, the hedge maze. Yeah, so he... Uh, they're in the room, like their room, where they've been sleeping. And he, you know, chops down the door with the axe. We have the very famous, here's Johnny! Line. His face uh, face through the thing. Which is great. Uh, Danny has already escaped by this point. He's gone out the window. But uh, Shelly can't. Just down the snowbank. Yeah. That just happens to be piled up to the second story where they are. Because... I believe it because yeah. that's how this winter is. Well, and we it, see it. It's right. It's like <laughs> we we it's... physically see him go out the window from yep. the outside. So no, I, I mean, know it's just they they do it's, it. <laughs> it's like a super fun happy slide. Uh, and Wendy gets Jack with a knife. She she slices the back of his hand when he finally does break through the door and like reaches in to pull the knob. Uh, and then she's able to like go run and hide while he's dealing with that and it's around this point where dick finally shows up and we, we kind of have not mentioned but like we have this whole background series of sequences where he's making his way to the hotel yep uh where he's like he's he's booking a plane uh from like he's like okay i'm just gonna fly from miami over there myself which, uh, yeah, and, and we see him, like, on the plane. We see him get in. <laughs> we see him convince the mechanic to let him lend him a snowcat because he's like, yeah, the guests we got staying in that hotel, they're real assholes. I got to kick them out. They turned out to be a bunch of irresponsible assholes. Uh, so, yeah, he, he's supposed to go get rid of them. And he, he finally trucks up there in the snowcat. Yeah. And. Comes in looking for people, and uh, almost immediately he gets axed. Immediately, like he he takes about ten steps in. Yeah, he's been calling, and then you know Jack comes running at him and just gets him right in the chest with an axe, and that's the end of him. Which is not what happens in the book. He survives <laughs> the book. So it was that was a really big shock to me when I first saw this as a kid after reading the book. That that was like a huge shock moment. Like I couldn't believe that happened. Totally threw me cuz like the the whole rest of the movie is very very different from the book. Whereas I was expecting it right away because I saw that. This is what happens to Willie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not very good at this. Uh so he he gets murdered just instantly and then yep. 
uh, Jack runs outside because he sees that Danny is outside uh, and Danny runs into the hedge maze. And then while he's doing the hedge maze, we have the ghosts of the hotel just starting to come out everywhere and Wendy just dealing with them all over the place. Oh, yeah. And she sees one that looks like, um, well, and yeah, I guess we see that this is like a decadent high society Epstein-ish thing. We, we see a guy in a fursuit given a blowjob. He looks like Barf. He looks like Barf. He could be like Barf's great, great, great granddad. Yeah, and it seems to just be a big New Year's celebration. So I do kind of think of this as a New Year's movie. It seems like it's just having a big New Year's party climax, but with ghosts. Oh, yeah. We also see the blood coming out of the elevator again. That that happens in the sequence. Wendy sees it this time. And she sees just like skeletons. You you see all sorts of stuff like that all through the place. It's it's cool just to see all of the ghosts of the hotel that clearly it's a lot haunted. <laughs> it's, it's not like just room 237. At the of, uh, yeah. At the end of that yokai movie. It's like, all right, we're all coming out now. Yeah. A hundred ghosts. Uh, so in the hedge maze, Danny kind of, he, he jukes Jack. Like he, he, he goes into the middle and then he kind of retraces his steps and hides. Because, and like, then, he's... Go ahead. Yeah, and, the, and he, like, brushes up the... Brushes up the steps where he, hit, like, jumped out so that yeah. it just looks like he just went forward and then the tracks disappear. Yeah, so he, he very uh, cleverly deals with that. And then, you know, Jack keeps running because Jack is totally chaotic at this point and isn't rational. And then Danny is able to just retrace the steps to get back out very easily. Yeah. And now they got a new snowcat to use. Yeah, because Dick left the snowcat running right outside when he came in and got murdered. So he and Wendy reunite and they they take off in the snowcat. And then we cut to the next morning. Jack frozen, just frozen solid in the maze. Just a cube. Yep. Uh, it's um, really another one of those really iconic horror shots. Yeah. And then Midnight, the Stars and You starts playing. You know, the, the very classic, recognizable oh, theme. Oh, yes. The, the ballroom theme. Yeah. And we see just an incredibly long zoom into one of the pictures on the wall. Uh, so, yeah, July 4th, 1921. Is, oh, July uh, 4th, of course. Yeah. Kind of a big deal uh, down in the U.S., I hear. Yeah, so this is the, the 1921 celebration, and we see smack dab in the middle is Jack. Jack. Uh, in, in this 1921 portrait. He's been claimed by the hotel for all time. Like, he's part of the tapestry of ghosts now. That's what that means. So, okay, uh, I was having some issues with this because... I could understand that, like, there's always that he was always there. Like, okay, there's always a ghost of Jack who kills somebody, but then where do the wife and kids come from? But no, the hotel like absorbed him after he died, and now yeah, he's, he's part claimed. of the history. 
Yeah, he's claimed by the hotel. Like he he is part oh, of the hotel now. I didn't see it that way. Okay, because that was the th- that was the big thing I was saying that I wanted to talk about was okay. Yeah, how does any of that work? But now I it's it's something I, that now I understand it. It makes yeah. sense to me now. And and that is really confirmed by the sequel because there there is a sequel to this astonishingly that came out in 2019. <laughs> Whole <laughs> yeah. 29 years later they. Or is it yeah, 39 years later? 39 years like, later because they, they did a sequel. But like, you know, Stephen King wrote his sequel to it much later too. I think like the book came out in 2012 or 2013. Oh wow. Because I've read the book as well, the uh Doctor Sleep. Uh and like it, it's a very different story. It's because it's a sequel to the book of The Shining. And the book of The Shining ends in a completely different way. It ends with the hotel exploding. Because right. there's no hedge maze in the the book version. There's, oh yeah, you were telling hedge me about animals. that. It's, Jack <laughs> has to like do something with the furnace or the boiler. Or expl- the boiler, yeah. Yeah, so the the boiler explodes and the 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 hotel burns down. And I think in Stephen King's sequel book, maybe it's been rebuilt. Whereas in the movie. The movie is very interesting, like the sequel, 2019, Dr. Sleep. It's a sequel to the book as well as a sequel to the movie. It blends them in a really interesting way. So the things that are different, it kind of makes it more a sequel to the movie, both by using the style of the movie and kind of making it more. It, it, it creates a version of it that could have developed from the end of this movie, which is interesting. Okay, okay fascinating but, but what the, what the movie does or and what the book does is its concept of the shining is like it's a place that is a psychic vampire like and it collects souls it kind of feeds off of people's emotional energy and it absorbs them over time okay so he, here's a question did grady kill his kids on his own or was he ghosted into doing it I mean, I would have to assume that he had a similar path to Jack, that ultimately the ghosts triggered something that was already there. Okay. Because, like, clearly in in the case of Jack, it's a mixture of things. The ghosts contributed, but there was something already going on. This was a predisposition uh like there, there's a the part where he's talking about his contract and how important it is to 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 be you know bona fide like to, to he, honor the contract yeah it's very john listy like when we were watching it we, we were thinking about how yeah it's it's a very john list thing it's that conservative economic uh family annihilator logic mm-hmm. and i think maybe jack and charles grady are both similar people in the same sort of sense like they're john lists you know they're they're people who are moving down that path and they just kind of needed the thing to push them into it i buy it uh, i could definitely like from the from the get-go i could tell that uh, jack nicholson was uh, destined to become the joker <laughs> yeah uh, and oh, like man. i do see stephen king's complaints in that regard i get it yeah yeah but i like it and and i think it's more interesting in the movie version than the book ultimately like i like the book fine but i do think the movie is better and that's a rare thing i would say Hmm. Uh, well 
I haven't read the book, but I loved the movie. Um, and, and like one thing that somebody, I wish I could remember who, but somebody mentioned on Twitter was, and, and something that I wholeheartedly agree with is if you're going to make your movie longer than an hour and a half, you have to like progress. It's progressively harder to earn our attention for every minute after that hour and a half. Uh, and that point is different for some people, I guess, for some, they have a longer, but it depends on the style. Like, it de- it does. But this one is like a, a what? Two twenty two thirty. About two twenty. Yeah. But it moves. Yeah, it moves. Feel it. I mean, this is one that, that earned, it earned the, the right to be that long. It, it earned that length or rather, um, the, the length of the film was necessary. I think if this was a, like a quick 90-minute film, I don't think it would have worked. No, absolutely not. And just, it, it's very stately. Like, we, we get these long, steady cam shots. We have a lot of circularity. We have a lot of people repeating movements, doing things over and over again, going from place to place. And they all serve a purpose. Like, they serve a metaphorical purpose, or they serve the purpose of just showing us the distance and showing us what living there is like, sort of the experience of this place, of them, why they would go stir crazy being here for in this yeah. deep winter. Yeah, yeah. It's great. Uh, I, I really oh, love real this movie. I've watched it so many times, it is pretty much one of my perennials. Uh, and it just gets better and better with age. It, it's such a fascinating movie. And it's so fascinating that it was hated when it came out that it was laughable and it's become a real classic like there are current blockbusters that pay tribute to it fucking what was it uh ready player one has an entire sequence set within the movie the shining oh my god really the climax of the movie is set within the overlook hotel in the shining taking place I haven't seen it. I, I just know this about it. It's it's one of the things that like people made were like, you should see it because of this. And like, I don't know. Eventually, Do I'll probably have see to it. Really? <laughs> I mean, we don't, but I'll probably see it sooner or later. Yeah, I'm not in well, a hurry. I read the book so and good. I don't mean to. He can beat up Jack Nicholson with an axe. <laughs> in fact, we, we shot the scene. We got Jack Nicholson to come in and just shoot him getting his ass kicked so that we could oh wait no it's well like the thing is i don't know i haven't seen the movie either is it, yeah, C- I don't know. Is it a cgi movie i don't know who cares there's a lot of cg yes well like it's a steven spielberg movie and the shining is steven spielberg's favorite movie oh isn't that amazing yeah. like this movie that was just a complete bomb when he was already the biggest filmmaker because this is post-Jaws, of course. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. This is the same year as Close Encounters. Oh, so he like he's on top of the world this year. And this movie that was like a failure and won at the Golden Raspberries. Like, that's my favorite movie of all time. It's interesting. <laughs> um, huge, huge cultural influence, too. Um, Gigantic. We like came back around to being culturally, well, not culturally relevant because... I don't know if The Shining has got like a huge resurgence, but relevant to the culture of today. Oh, yeah. I mean, um, it's heavily referenced. There's so much clothing and stuff like you see people wearing Shining merch all the time. Well, 
I'm just talking, sorry, about, like, how the movie is, like, it, it's a lockdown movie, basically. Oh, yeah, that, too. Yes, absolutely. And, and like, and about what it boils down to is about being trapped with an abusive family member that you can't get away from. Yeah, it is completely a domestic abuse movie, and it really does still strongly boil down to that. Like, if you watch it, that theme is so strong and so clear, and just, like, it, it's not adorned by a bunch of other stuff. Uh, it, like, it's almost an art film. It just has, like, this ghost story at the end. Yeah, but, like, you could take out not that i'm saying anyone should but you could take out the the ghosts completely have the rest of the movie play out exactly the same and it'll st- it's still works yeah like it's still doable is, that way he is still the type who would go that crazy well yeah because then it is just the family annihilator story like you you just I, again it's like what we were talking about earlier with like it's better with aliens. Like it's just better yeah. with ghosts. It's more fun. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Otherwise it'd just be a really depressing movie about a guy who wanted to kill his kids so bad. And he just froze to death to do it. Yeah. Just me as Pi Patel tearfully at the end It's better with murder ghosts. The story's <laughs> more fun. So yeah, that's, that's the shining. Our first discussion of a Kubrick uh, always a, quite a thing, and we we did it as the secondary picture to a documentary about Al Adamson. I like that a lot. <laughs> yeah. So so, what would the Al Adamson title for if he were to chop up and re-release The Shining be? I mean, you'd have to have something with blood in it, and it would have to oh, reference blood, yeah. the elevator because that's the iconic thing. The blood of floor thirteen. Yeah, I mean something like that. The it, the it horror of the reference. bloody hotel, you know. Yeah. Um. Let's see. You can check in, but you won't check out. Of blood Dial. hotel. <laughs> bloody red room. I don't know. Cause I I yeah, guess not bloody red it's, room. it's no. a tough one because Al Adamson. And The Shining, like particularly like, this version of The Shining, are complete anathema. Like it's, <laughs> they don't go together. They're full hour longer than anything Al Adamson ever did. It's just it's it's slow and patient. It, it's you know it it cost more combined than all of his movies combined, most likely. <laughs> and this was a cheap production for Kubrick. Yeah. Shelley Duvall's just like dancing naked and it's like when... well it would be Regina Carroll <laughs> oh yeah yeah of course Regina Carroll would definitely be Wendy it wouldn't be Jack Nicholson Al Adamson couldn't get Jack Nicholson um I mean it would Rust probably Hamblin, be maybe? Rust Hamblin like yeah. you you'd kind of have to have Rust Hamblin I mean yeah uh and you would probably have John Bud Cardos as like a native ghost or, like an actual or, just native ghost. <laughs> oh yeah. Probably. Uh the kid would be terrible. The kid would just be unwatchable. Would probably be carrying around like a doll that looks really offensive. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> an offensive doll. Um and there's a monkey. 
I mean, probably some sort of pet. You got to have a pet in there for the kids. Uh, Yeah. And the hedge maze is completely out They're They're not going to be able to afford that. I don't know what they're doing. Maybe just bouncy castle, the forest. They they just go out in the woods. (laughs) Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Woods are free. Yeah. (laughs) I'd still watch it. (laughs) Blood overlook. Uh, To. Blood from the Overlook. Hmm, that's tough. Uh, Legend of the Bloody Hotel. I, like you, you gotta have blood in there. I kind of want to. I feel like the elevator. Elevated blood pressure. It's <laughs> way too clever. I uh, know, but it has that thing about not being what The Shining's about. Hills run no. red with blood. Uh, that already exists. Anyway, great movie. Just like a total masterpiece. I would, this is probably in my top five movies of all time. It's like <laughs> way up there. I could never make a top five movies of all time, but it's a good one. Yeah, it's, that's totally fair. Like it's a this, contender. I've, I've seen it so many times. And this for a movie that I myself did not like all that much the first time I watched it because I watched it right after watching the book as a kid. But I was like blown away by the the killing of Dick Halloran just being so shocking. It's like he dies in this. What? And kind of out of nowhere too. And I really respect the movie for that. Just having a character who does not die in this best-selling novel by a really well-liked writer of the period. Uh, it's cool to throw a wrench like that. No one would ever do that these days. That would never happen. Especially since they spent all these scenes and all this effort getting him to the hotel. Him getting there. It's amazing. Ah, I'm bad at this. <laughs> Probably a good 15 minutes of runtime is him getting to the hotel. Yeah, just we, we get to see him hanging out in his pad and see what his vacation's like. We see him meet other friends along the way and people he knows. It's amazing. Just <sighs> audacious. Uh, and I really respect it. I love it. <laughs> All right. So any final thoughts before we head into part three? No, I'm good. All right. Uh, then on we go. And we're back for part three. Although let's just hike on back to part two for just a moment. Because there's a couple things I wanted to say or corrections already that I, I want to make about what I was saying regarding The Shining. For correction, uh, as is obvious, we take a brief break in between each of these segments. And I looked up uh, the thing about the doctor in The Shining because it was bugging me because I couldn't remember who it was. Okay. So the actual actress playing the doctor is Anne Jackson, who's a classic Hollywood actress uh, and not who I was thinking of. I was thinking of Robin Pappas, who plays the nurse in the deleted ending sequence. Uh, Oh. <clears throat> where yeah and it's just a, a like a nurse talking to uh wendy and danny after after the denouement i guess so different different person altogether than the character i was thinking of uh although the person uh the daughter is nelly mckay who's great uh, okay yeah that's that's right i i you told me when we watched the movie but i couldn't remember <laughs> Anyway, uh, another thing about The Shining, though, I wanted to reference uh, Stephen King's The Shining, the 1997 TV series version. Oh. 
okay. They did a TV miniseries because there was like that period in the 90s where they were doing all those Stephen King miniseries. Oh, yeah, right, right. There was there was a lot of those. And The Shining was really good. And then most of the others were kind of hot trash, especially Tommyknockers. And this one, which is just awful. And the kid in uh, the remake of The Shining, uh, it's it's rough. <laughs> oh, really? It's, it's Steven Weber from Wings as Jack. Not good. Um, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure. I can't <laughs> place them. I haven't, yeah. seen, I haven't really seen Wings. Yeah. Uh, can't place him is about right. Exactly who you want to be playing <laughs> a character who was also once played by Jack Nicholson. Uh, it's it's a terrible version. Like, it's very faithful to the book. And Stephen King has said that it's his preferred version. But it stinks. It's real bad. Yeah, well, uh, this, is, this is my version. I wrote it. So th- this <laughs> is the real one. That other one's not real. I mean, I mean, basically, that's sort of his feelings on the matter. And I guess, I mean, he did write the book, so that's it's uh, within his wishes to do so. That's fine. It's not like the character's name, Stephen King. It's only about him if he makes it about him. But, you know, I I mean, this is why we're very much for death of the author. We we, I'm more interested in the themes that actually just kind of resonate from something necessarily than whether they were intended. It's oh, it's yeah. not really interesting to know whether the author necessarily intended something as long as it still exists within the text. Oh yeah. I mean, if it was all about how it was intended, the room would be the worst movie ever made. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've seen some pretty bad stuff. Well, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But... <laughs> So speaking of uh, some of the worst movies ever made, uh, one Uh of the (laughs) not really. I mean, so I I watched uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis. Uh, He's kind of widely recognized as one of those terrible filmmakers. Uh, This is what this is uh, my pick from the first row, because I had a couple particular targets this month as well. This being our New Year's resolution stuff. Ah, Yes. So one pick from the so top. So you've been going row. from the first row as well, or or just I, this one? Just this one. I did one pick from the first row. So I have watched a movie in the very first row, uh, which was the gruesome twosome from the Herschel Gordon Lewis cereal box, The Feast. Uh, okay. This is sort of like him trying on horror comedy. So. Herschel Gordon Lewis, his big thing was he invented gore. Like he was the first person to have movie gore, like for for just the purpose of having bloody gore uh, as part of as the selling feature of a horror movie. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So he's he's a pretty big deal in that regard. But like his stuff is really cheap. It's really trashy. It's really bad. And this one is weird because it opens with these two decorated styrofoam heads having a conversation with each other about what their lives were. Because, <laughs> like, it, it comes out, it's, it's, a, it's a movie about a wig shop that kidnaps and scalps girls and sells their hair okay. <laughs> as wigs. Okay. Real human hair wigs. So it's very so, gorgeous. So the because- shop kidnaps the girls. Well, like the there's the people. Yeah, there's a, there's a, a mother and son who own the shop and the mom is this weird old lady who is always talking to a stuffed bobcat, like a, a taxidermy bobcat. You know, right, Napoleon, at the end of like every sentence. 
Okay. <laughs> it's this is the comedy element. And uh, obviously it's really gory. Her son just is supposed to kill the girls and uh, scalp them. Uh, but like it's it's increasingly gory ways of killing them. And it's always very absurd. Of course. Uh, cheerfully bad cinema, like really exuberantly, energetically bad. Um, very low rent. The The gore is just bright red and there's lots of it. And it just goes on and on. And it's kind of like this Nancy Drew type. But like she's in college now and her family and her boyfriend and all of her friends are just totally done with all this mystery bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> but then she's like she's telling, you know, all of her friends and they, they just kind of want to make out and, and, you know, party and stuff and just. A bunch of them ended up somehow ending up going to this wig place and getting murdered. <laughs> it's very silly stuff, but I don't know. It's interesting. Uh, Herschel is always uh, unique. All right. And that's the gruesome twosome. <clears throat> the gruesome twosome. Uh, my other thing this this week was to or well, this month, I guess. But I did it this week was to complete at least one stack. Uh, so I completed two stacks this week. Oh. Uh, and first one, there there was just one thing left in a stack, and it was Grunt, the wrestling movie. <laughs> All right. Uh, so this is like a mockumentary-style movie, and it's from 1985, so it's like the year oh. before WWF launched. Oh, wow. So... So this is like a completely different wrestling scene than what I'm going to know about. Exactly. Like it's all the big personalities of like the unincorporated regional scenes. So like there's uh, there's a couple people that you might actually recognize. There's a guy, Adrian Street, who was like a, a really big independent wrestler for a long time. And there's uh, I think it's Wally George. Is that the guy's name? Um he had like a public access talk show that he'd have wrestlers on all the time. And he'd oh. just like be this super conservative uh, personality. And then eventually they would just yell enough that someone would have a fight most of the time. <laughs> uh, that sounds fun. It's fun. It's, it's very in kayfabe where it's, it's about this guy, mad dog who beheads someone in the ring by accident. And then there's this, new wrestler called the mask who has a very similar wrestling style but he always wears a mask so it's the the mystery they're trying to unravel is whether mad dog is the mask oh cool that <clears throat> sounds fun mm -hmm. uh next up i watched woodlands dark and days bewitched the uh, very comprehensive folk horror documentary from Severin, uh, leading off the All the Haunts Be Ours set. Ooh. Uh, this was tremendous. This is a really great documentary. Uh, extremely thorough, because this is about three hours long. Uh, but it, it really did just breeze by, because there's just so much interesting information here. Uh, it sort of starts in, like, Pretty much the whole first hour is on British folk horror because that's sort of the genesis of the genre uh, and sort of the best known pictures in the genre are British. So we've got uh, the the trinity of folk horror, Wicker Man, Blood on Satan's Claw and Witchfinder General. 
So they spend a lot of time on those three and then just sort of branch out into international folk horror and just all of the different traditions. Uh, really cool. Uh, I'm really looking forward to digging into the rest of the box. Uh, the the animated sequences in the doc are done by Guy Madden, which was really cool. I'm a big fan of him. Right on, right on. Uh, next up is Norway, which is this very strange 2014 Greek movie about a vampire, a Greek vampire in 1984. Uh, and he doesn't bite people often. He, he, it's kind of gauche, I guess, at this oh, point. Okay. <laughs> But he's just co- he's constantly dancing. He can't stop dancing or his heart will stop. So the, the, he's just dancing all the time. And he just like hangs out in the clubs all night long <laughs> in Athens. And all then right. he he's seduced by this lady and he wants to bite her. And he ends up biting this weird Norwegian drug dealer instead. And that guy starts to turn into a vampire. And he's just dancing and hanging out with them for a while. And he seems to be... <laughs> Just sort of like a, a weird folk beast because he 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 they don't speak the same language so he can't communicate with them and he's just weird. He maybe is on drugs all the time. I'm not sure. Uh, and he gets roped into a scheme where he's supposed to turn someone into a vampire and uh, it's it's supposedly Bram Stoker himself and <laughs> so just this whole second. weird thing. Yeah, uh, questionable indeed. Uh, it's a very strange movie. <laughs> uh, next Bram up, Stoker, is he, he's not alive, is he? Good God, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that movie, that that book was written in the 19th century. Yeah, so he's got to be like 80 now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something like that. Uh, next up is Mirror, Mirror. Which is uh, Rainbow Harvest, who is very Lydia Dietzy. She's kind of just dressed as Robert Smith from The Cure. Okay. So she's the goth girl in a new town, and nobody likes her because she's goth, and it's all very high school clicky stuff. Of course. A lot of high school girl politics in this oh. movie. It's, it's kind of slow. But she has this haunted mirror in the house she moves into. And, of course, it helps her get revenge on everybody who laughs at her. Uh, Robert Smith looks. Why would everybody <laughs> laugh at that? Well, I know, yeah, it's ridiculous. But people it, are it, bad. They, they were preppies, and it, it was this whole thing. It's pretty silly. It's much slower than I expected it to be, but you know, it it has some of some fun energy. It's very trashy. It has kind of a made for TV vibe, except for being kind of bloody. Mm, (laughs) And speaking of bloody next up night of the demon, uh, incredibly bloody Bigfoot movie. Oh, you showed me a screenshot that was just a gigantic Bigfoot footprint that's filled up with blood. And that's the title card where Night of the Demon appears. Yeah, really great moment. Uh, uh, it's It's got this guy who's in the woods and Bigfoot rips his arm off and he falls over and then the blood fills the footprint and the title comes up. <laughs> Genius. Amazing opening. Uh, also has a very famous sequence where there's a guy who gets off his motorbike to pee by the side of the road and... 
Sasquatch comes up and rips his dick off. (laughs) (laughs) It's very bloody. It's just like stupidly bloody. Uh, And this was a video nasty, I think, on the original main list. Uh, it's it's a fun time. I, w- I was really glad to finally see it hit Blu-ray. This is the new Severin release. Nice. Because uh, I'd seen it. That in, sounds like, like a blast. Yeah, I, I had seen like a really low quality VHS version of it before. It, it was nice to finally see it get nice treatment. Uh, next up is Decasia, which is another film by Bill Morrison. He, he did uh, uh, Dawson City, Frozen Time, and Village Detective. Oh right, yeah. Uh, and this is. An older film of his, which is just all decaying old nitrate, like silent picture footage. Oh, oh, yeah. I I think you've told me about this uh, before. Yeah, I'd never actually had a chance to see it before. And I finally got a copy of it. Uh, And it's it's fascinating. It's just this. It's it's quite short. It's uh, like uh, just a little over an hour. And it's just all of this deteriorating film stock and all of this old footage from various different things. But like the the way it's sequenced makes it kind of feel ominous. Uh, and the music obviously is is very uh, intense and kind of wild. Uh, depending on your tolerance for experimental music, uh, I, I know some people complain about the soundtrack, but I I dug it. Uh, next right. up is shallow grave this is a very grim bleak brutal movie oh, uh, really? so the, this is it's it's a, a killer cop movie oh. uh, which, uh always you know nasty so th- there's it's these four catholic school school girls on a road trip to fort lauderdale they're going down the country and they're crossing georgia uh, and they just kind of accidentally happen upon this cop killing his mistress. And then he's just hunting them down and he's the cop. So like when they, they get to when like someone gets to uh, other authorities, they just get arrested. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's it's rough when, uh, when, uh, when cops are evil, good thing there's none of that in real life. <laughs> yeah so it's it's grim it's very heavy uh but it's it's quite well made uh very intense and just like grim a, a real a cab movie <laughs> <laughs> and then i finished the andy milligan box the dungeon of andy milligan so i watched three movies here first flesh pot on 42nd street which is arguably his most respectable film which is interesting because it's a movie with hardcore sex in it. Hmm. All uh, right. It's, it's just sort of a, a really realistic, verite, mean streets of 60s New York, uh, the sex work scene. Oh, okay. And it's about uh, a, a young hustler named Dusty, which is a very gender ambiguous name. Uh, it, it is played by a woman, but I think maybe was written as a man uh you know given andy milligan's usual uh style right uh and you know it's just like uh she's kicked out of her kind of easy gig she's like staying with this guy and he wants her to get a job and she's not into that so she steals his tv and leaves and she just becomes a prostitute instead in you know 42nd street new york which is pretty nasty 
kind of gets into some bad scenes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. It's, it's, it's very fascinating, but like it's, it's, it's grimy. Uh, and then seeds is an earlier Milligan. And this is like, it's kind of weirdly arrested development. -y. It's like if Andy Milligan did the arrested development concept, but like as a $50 budget slasher movie. <laughs> so, um, the, the, uh, box here, it's a incest. So, uh, so, if I'm reading it correctly, I think it's meant to be sown in incest, harvested in hate. Correct. So it's this, I, I think it's Christmas. I think it is a Christmas movie. <laughs> or maybe Thanksgiving. Yeah, no, I think it's Thanksgiving. Um, th there's this woman invites the whole family for Thanksgiving dinner, uh, but the mom doesn't want them to come because she hates them all. Okay. Tired. She, she, they, they're a very dysfunctional family, uh, and there's also like uh, some interfamilial dalliances of the Pornhub variety that uh, uh, oh. don't that doesn't want starting up again. The Pornhub uh, variety, and I know, and everybody <laughs> listening knows exactly what you're talking about, including yeah, yeah, uh, and then ultimately someone starts killing everyone off. <laughs> it's it's just a really weird movie. Kind okay. of a weird, bizarre vibe. Uh, the dad is hanging around. He has an eye patch. It kind of felt Guy Madney in that respect. <laughs> uh, and then also I watched Vapors, which isn't on the list because it's just a short film, but it's sort of the concluding one in the set. It's also, I think, the earliest surviving Milligan film. Uh, and it's another like really cinema verite thing. It's just a guy making his first visit to a gay bathhouse in early 60s New York and just sort of taking in the culture of it uh, like not it, it is a fiction but uh, it, it's it's sort of that concept it's cool sounds interesting and uh, last up is the masturbating gunman <laughs> which uh, fascinating shot on video movie uh, this is Australian and I, I talked a bit about this. It's this he he is a brilliant detective and he can track down women and know everything about them by sniffing their panties. But he's also a compulsive masturbator. Right, right, right. Uh, and he he's gained this power because he grew up in a monastery, which was just like really harsh and anti-sex. But like somehow he he gained these abilities uh, and it also made him just like really horny because he just was completely shut off from sexuality for a really long time. It's, mm -hmm. it's a very interesting movie in how it talks about sexuality and, and sort of a development and a progress in that respect. Cause it's like about this supervillain who wants to get a virgin to bear a child for him. Uh, who's going to rule. I, he, he's, kind of got a nazi vibe he's from germany of course uh and he's kind of giving he's sort of a cult leader but he has all of these employees who all wear balaclavas it's it's very strange but they're in the sex trafficking business but it's totally tanking because society has become too sexually progressive so they're like no i mean we just can't really sell it anymore we've got the internet and there's all this stuff which is, I don't know, it, it's a very unusual movie in that respect because it's a lot of scenes of him, like, seeing a pretty woman uh, unexpectedly and just, like, 
falling over, masturbating, going, Jesus, fuck. <laughs> Just reminded of the of the woman and the monkey from that that whatever that movie was. Carnival from Magic. The, yeah. <laughs> it's like Yeah. It's I mean it's it's crazy. There there's a lot of bodily fluids. Uh <laughs> yeah. so those are the options for our second pick of next week. What do you think? Well, I'm leaning towards Night of the Demon, but I don't know about the masturbating gunman or not. <laughs> well, I mean, which one do you think? Uh, I mean, I don't know. They're they're both very interesting. Uh, like, Night of the Demon is wild stuff. It it is a classic video nasty, so I guess it kind of would fit in our sort of series of those that we've been doing. True, true. I mean, like. Uh, Either one, we'll we'll probably watch the other, because like well, the, these are both interesting movies that we'll probably have to watch at some point. Yeah, you know what? I want to go for something. It's been a long time. I feel that since we've gone for something completely out there, so let's do the masturbating gunman. All right. Uh, so for our first, or I, I guess first, uh, some additions to the stacks. Even though these will not be eligible to pick this week. Because we're only picking from the top. Yep. Uh, but there's just a handful of ads. We've got A Taste of Blood, which is the next in the Herschel Gordon Lewis set, which is this businessman drinks some brandy with blood in it and he becomes a vampire. And then he becomes like really angry about it and he he's going to go get revenge on all of the people who executed Dracula. What? <laughs> <laughs> That is the plot. <laughs> I'm a vampire. I'm a vampire. It's it seems like it's gonna be a wild one. This is one of the uh, the Herschel Garden Lewis ones that I have not seen, but it sounds pretty wild, and I've seen some images from it because it's uh, featured. It's it's got a really famous vampire businessman uh, design. Okay. Uh, next up is Eyes of Fire, which is the first movie in the folk horror box, where uh, native ghosts are menacing a preacher and his flock who are run out of town because the, the preacher was accused of adultery. Uh, so he and his flock are just in some remote woods being uh, terrorized by ghosts. Cool, cool. It's supposed to be really good. Uh, this, this is one of the more noteworthy films in the set, like one of the best known. Okay. Next up is I Drink Your Blood, another major video nasty. This is uh, this uh, Nazi motorcycle gang uh, rolls into this town. They're on the run from the law, so they're trying to hide out. But uh, they end up raping someone, of course. And then when the grandfather goes to uh, confront them about it, they beat him up. So the kid puts a bunch of rabies from a like an infected dog into their food and all of these crazed Nazi hippies with heads full of acid also become dangerously rabid and descend upon the town. <laughs> wow. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, pretty legendary exploitation picture. Big time video nasty. 
sounds ridiculous. I kind of love it. Yeah. Uh, next up, Arabato, where this is sort of a, a film about heroin addiction and film addiction. It's this low-budget filmmaker, and he's just kind of not getting anything done because he's on heroin, and he's also constantly watching these weird experimental films mailed to him by a friend. Okay. <laughs> I hear it's very Lynchian, very weird, uh, supposed to be great. And next up is Human Animals, which is a dialogue-free post-apocalyptic film about two men, one woman, and a dog uh, after the end of the world, just on a desert isle. (laughs) No dialogue, apparently a lot of nudity and sex uh, with uh, all featured. Oh, boy. Uh, Supposed to be uh, weird, weird stuff. And uh, last one is Dead Kids, uh, I think, a.k.a. Strange Behavior, where an evil mad scientist is abducting New Zealand teens wearing a Tor Johnson mask uh, and, you know, using them in experiments. (laughs) Oh, no. This is a really uh, major film in terms of uh, the Ozploitation trend, like a a really landmark Ozploitation film. Okay. All right. So, uh... For our main film next week, we're only choosing from the top three rows. The top three. All right. So we have a few here, and I've been looking at adaptation and keep mixing it up with Annihilation, which I've seen. But this, oh, this is a Spike Jones. Yeah, so this movie is about, uh, it's, uh, what's his name? Uh, the the uh, screenwriter for Spike Jones, the guy who wrote Being John Malkovich, uh, and he directed Synecdoche, New York. Okay. Uh, Charlie Kaufman. So Nicolas Cage plays Charlie Kaufman. It's about Charlie Kaufman trying to adapt this popular novel into a screenplay because he's been hired to, but it's just unadaptable as a movie because it's just not movie material right right oh and wow then, it's nicholas cage this has been nicholas sitting cage. at the top of our list for Indeed. so long and it has nicholas cage it has nicholas cage in as twin brothers because he plays charlie kaufman and his uh popcorn movie loving uh hack writer brother donald kaufman who does not exist in reality <laughs> all right um, well, heck, I've, I'm all for watching it. Nicolas Cage is one of my favorite actors of all time. Nicolas Cage rules. Yep. I want to see that new movie that uh, that he's doing. There's a couple of them that I really want to see. Pig, I have not seen yet, and I hear oh, it's Oh, I haven't seen incredible. Pig either. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I think The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent is the one you're thinking of. Yeah, that's the one I'm thinking yeah. of, where he plays himself, but the internet version of himself it seems like yeah uh which you know should be pretty fun i should like, be fun i i like even the trashy nicholas cage projects they, they still work there's just there's, something about him that just fundamentally works i think it was roger ebert who said uh, he is an asset in good films and indispensable in bad ones yeah and th- that's absolutely true yeah uh, so yeah, I think so we pretty adaptation. well decided we're doing adaptation then. Certainly. 
All right. So uh, next week, Adaptation and the Masturbating Gunman, a.k.a. Masked Avenger versus Ultra Villain in the Lair of the Naked Bikini. This is going to be that's the interesting original title. one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's what it comes up as on the list here. Yeah, I, I, I flipped over to it to remind me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. So those should be interesting. Uh, and this will be an interesting beginning to our January uh, resolutions and spring cleaning and so forth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, here's hoping... I guess uh, happy new year everybody. Um yeah, happy new year y'all. This uh this isn't the first episode that's gone up, it's the first one that we've recorded in the new year. Um yeah. I hope that your year is better than it was last year, even if last year was good. Yeah, we we, we could all use a little improvement, I think. Uh here's to a uh reasonable 2022 that's really all i'm asking is just for it to be a reasonable year yeah yeah just 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 be a regular year just be like when was the last normal one uh maybe like 2015 2015 i'm thinking 2015 was normal-ish i think it was still bad (laughs) anyway the 90s the 90s were perfect nothing ever bad happened in the 90s the dream of the 90s all right uh so thanks very much for listening everyone and uh keep watching the stacks <laughs>